and this is episode number 73 and i'm sheldon grant from panoramic outdoors we've got a great guest today today doug duran before we get to that we've got a couple things we got to uh put on the docket to speak about but before we get going i'd like to give a huge shout out and thank you to cowboys caviar you guys listen to our podcast you understand that they've been a huge supporter of our podcast for the last little while now they're uh, a jerky company from saskatchewan canada and they got a wicked product. So if you're in the convenience stores, look for their product. They got five different flavors, hot and sweet, original, candy, teriyaki, and peppered. And if you can't find them in your stores, I would highly suggest going on the internet. Go to www.cowboyscaviar.com and look for their product online. And if, while you're online and you're looking to maybe do some fundraising, they've got an option. It's just like, you know, selling candy bars, almonds, or what have you. If you want to raise some money for your groups, check out their fundraising option on their website. Again, that's www.cowboyscaviar.com. And welcome to our show. We got three of us tonight, me, Chase, and Tristan. I guess we'll start off and introducing the boys. Tristan, what's going on over there in Lockport? Man, I am literally salivating thinking of the Cowboys Caviar. That makes for an awkward podcast when your mouth is like watering like that. But, uh, I'm coming around on the candy there, Sheldon. I just want to let you know that's a it might be pulling up into the the front there. Have you guys thought about running the little scheme that uh, that I've maybe thought of with the Cowboys Caviar fundraiser and just buying a whole shitload of it for a fundraiser and selling it back to yourself? (laughs) (laughs) Just selling it to each other. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, we fundraise a lot, lot of jerky. Might be one way to do it. Uh, on my end, uh, haven't been doing a ton. We finally got the ice shack out on the river. So that was a huge accomplishment. I think chase, I think sat dormant for two years, basically once the runners got tore off it. So big reds back. He's on the red. She's back, back in action, man. It, it was actually big a, reds on the red. Yeah. yeah. Double red. It was actually a, a little bit easier than I thought it was going to be to, to get that sucker out there. So it's. Um, it was a little, the, the build up to it was, was, uh, the stressor for me. So, but I'm glad it's out yeah. there now. Yeah, if anybody's, totally. if anybody's wondering who's talking next, that's Chase Drylick coming from St. Andrews. He's the third guy of, uh, the podcast. Chase, what's going on over in your side, side or your neck of the woods, some might say. Hey man. Um, well, you know, been enjoying, enjoying the, uh, the ice fishing shack there a few days a week with the boys and. I'm um, just cooking up some some wicked uh, diet food. Old COVID's caught up to me here quite a bit. I think been put on a few pounds, so been uh, been scheming ways to still make awesome food, but uh, not have to put on all the weight kind of thing. So, um, but yeah, <laughs> been spending a lot of time out with uh, with the boys out at the ice shack there, and and it's the kind of like the first real year that uh, that I've been pushing. And really put in a lot of effort to get them out together. So, for those of you who don't know me, my oldest is going to be four this summer. My youngest is going to be two in a couple months here. So, kind of at that toddler stage where they're still troublemakers, but uh, trying to teach them some stuff outside and just get them outdoors. And and uh, it's a huge learning curve. I'm thinking I'm going to write a bit of a blog post on it. But a couple things that uh, that really kind of brought me back to some of my childhood memories of the uh the not so great parts of ice fishing was the the first time i had dax on the big lake he uh stepped in a one of the holes 
pretty much halfway through the the morning there and then when we were the second time we were set up at the shack i think or was the first it might have been the first time uh we're, we're catching quite a few fish actually we're catching some saugers and uh decker instantly went from wanting to catch a fish to not wanting to catch a fish so we got freaked out the one time i brought one up and he started like did like an evasive maneuver around me and touched the stove while it was hot burnt his hand not bad at all though you can't even see the burn so but freaked him out more more than anything and then uh that same day dax decided to do uh like a suplex on himself off the top ropes of the bench right onto the floor of the ice shack so it's been an eventful uh few outings with with the boys um but they're they're troopers they they love going out and they always want to head back out so uh that's that's uh a win in my books yeah that's super cool and especially get the kids out a couple learning curves for everyone i guess and you and tristan share the shack so do you ever get to the shack and see that uh maybe tristan burnt more wood the night before than you thought and maybe say his name a few times with a couple f-bombs or no it hasn't got gone there yet we're uh you know we're we're pretty uh we communicate pretty good on on the levels of stuff at the ice shack and um it's not too far of a jaunt so i got a a little bit of wood sitting in the backyard there that i can always toss in the back back of the truck to to load her back up but yeah speaking of diets I'm also on one, so this is my second intro drinking water, and things are going to have to change here quick. But Tristan, uh, you've been out in that shack quite a bit. I noticed you're taking uh, not your your little human, but your little puppy and spending a lot of time out there. How's that going? Uh, we've had both Finn and Willie out there, and, uh, yeah, it's been great. Uh, it's nice. It's, it's not the fishing isn't, you know, something to write home about, but, it's a place to go relax, get a change of scenery from the house, and uh, kick back by the wood stove and burn all that wood chase brought down from the shack. So, and and the great part is, is like I feel like Willie really likes the shack. He was nervous about it at first. So, if, for those of you who don't know, Willie's my new puppy. Um, if you haven't checked out the blog, I'm writing about him on the blog there. Um, so check that out. We'll I'll try to keep everyone updated on how his training's going and how he's integrating to the the home life but yeah willie like for the the first time he's out there he's a little nervous but then he like slept for like five hours basically in the shack and just loved it so that was that was pretty cool to see didn't catch any fish but we burnt a lot of wood and uh had a nice relaxing day yeah that's awesome i'd, I'd always dream about having like a permanent shack somewhere and you know, where where I live, there's not too many good lakes to actually get to. I went to Dauphin a few times this year, and the the fishing has kind of petered off there as well. But, yeah, I, I kind of always have this uh, this dream of making or building this sweet shack where I can go and spend time in Burnwood and just sit back and chill. So, uh, Sweet shack location is your moose camp, Sheldon. Oh, yeah, and Tom's, I just need a helicopter to get there on, <laughs> after work. The big attraction to that to the ice shack is just burning the wood, man. I'm pretty sure it's like even the spot we're at right now, we don't catch a whole bunch of fish, and it's mostly little little saugers. So it's a little bit of action, but uh, it's close to home for us, and it's easy to get the boys out there and Tristan's crew out there. So that's uh, that's the main goal. Yeah, for sure. Speaking of burning wood, I'm super pumped to go winter camping. We just finally we got our tent in place we finally got our stove we ended up ordering a g stove so anybody that's doing winter camping and stuff maybe you can 
send us a DM and give us some tips and tricks. But we're running uh, a Citizen Canvas, Canvas tent and a G stove this winter um, and hopefully be getting out one of these weekends soon. So pretty excited about that. Um, but to tell you guys another story, I got a story for you, fellas. I don't think you've heard it yet. But the other day, I was driving to work, and this, let's just put this time frame as uh, like a Wednesday. And I was going by this one this one field, and it was probably like 10 or 11 in the morning. Um, I had to drive to Verdon to go check on a crew. So I noticed there's a deer standing in the field. And first of all, in my travels, I, deer usually aren't standing out in the middle of fields by close to lunchtime. So I kind of got the binoculars on it, and I looked and noticed it had a white butt. So I'm like, oh, man, that's a mule deer. And uh, so we were kind of watching it for, you know, a couple minutes, and it wasn't acting properly. Like, it wasn't really noticing that I was watching it. Like, it didn't really care I was there, which isn't normal for for deer. And I don't know much about mule deer, but I'm assuming they're close to being the same as whitetail. So anyways, I kind of took note of that. And then on Friday, I had a bunch of meetings in the morning, and then I was driving back to the same work area where my crew is. So I'm like, well, I'm going to go buy that field again. So Friday, I think it was about the same time, like maybe a little earlier, like 10 in the morning. Sure enough, she was standing like right on the road. So I drove up to her and got to like within maybe 10 feet. And I was like creeping up slowly because I didn't, I knew there's something wrong with her. I just didn't want to scare her. Well, then when she saw me, she freaked out. She like went to run, fell over, jumped back up, ran through the ditch, jumped the fence with no, no problem. And then turned and just stood and like stared at me and i was just like what the heck like what's wrong with this thing and i was looking it's kind of got you know some st- like some furs coming off of it in spots but like it wasn't major by any means and its neck was like all crimpled up like a slinky and i was just like man this this isn't right you know and so finally i'm like okay well i'm gonna phone conservation so i got a hold of conservation they got me in touch with one of their uh one of their wardens and uh, he kind of gave me, or he called me, and I gave him a location and stuff. And I met him out there a few hours later. And she, yeah, same thing. She was still standing there. So we had a quick conversation, and he kind of thanked me for reporting it because he said they've had previous animals in the area having brainworm. Um, and not only that, but like the first thing that came to my mind was CWD. Although we, I don't think we have it in Manitoba, but I mean, I think it's a good thing to uh, talk about when you see animals like this and, and to report them because you, you just never know. And I believe the, the plan was for the conservation officer to dispatch the animal and then get a biologist to take a look at it. And, I mean, from what I could tell, it was either A, hit by a car, or, yeah, it had something definitely wrong with it. Um, but, yeah, that's what happened to me this week. Yeah, I think I, with uh, with that funky head movement, you, you showed me a picture of that thing and and uh i know animals with uh with brain worm do some weird stuff with their heads so very well could have been that or hit by a car too yeah that's true so yeah that was one thing that i was kind of questioning and i haven't looked it up yet and i'm gonna i always kind of thought that whitetail and mule deer were carriers of brain worm but that had no effect on them like it would uh moose and an elk but i could be very very wrong with that so no one quote me and correct me Please send me a DM uh, through Instagram or Facebook. Um, I've got big news on my end. What's here, buddy? I got my socks. <laughs> and they're great. They're the best. I see why you were hoarding all of them. Wow. <laughs> I'm hoarding all of them. I had like two pair. Yeah, exactly. I feel like a badass now. I'm all decked out in my uh, all black wool love gear. And uh, so I've got the socks. I've got the pants. 
and now I've also got not just the uh, zip up, but I've got the crew neck as well. And I've actually kind of liked the crew neck uh, when I'm going out on maybe like a heavier mission because I find that like I c- it's a little bit more comfortable if I'm wearing my moose neck as opposed to um, the zip up, which can kind of overlap sometimes. So I uh, it's it's nice for me to have that option. Like the zip up, I'll wear on like lighter days if I'm really bundling up. I'll I'll add the crew neck and go from there. So, nice. And if anyone's very confused with that, moose neck is a, like a tube that we sell in our store. So if you're looking for one of them, go to our store. We call them the moose neck. They're like essentially a buff, but we can't technically call them a buff. So moose neck, go buy one. They're on sale for 20 bucks. Plus tax. <laughs> yeah. And if you're wanting to get into some wool love, uh, and I suggest you do, check them out at wool.love. They've got a great website with sizing and everything on there. So uh, I myself, I'm 6'2", I wear a large, and that does me just fine. And there's actually a lot of length on the sleeve. So ladies or fellas, if you're a little taller, a little longer in the arm, this is the stuff for you. That's me, man. Excellent arm length for me on that wool of stuff. There's not many things that that, uh, that stretch out that far. So uh, I'm very happy with that. Yeah, and anybody that's looking for Wolove, you can use our promo code at checkout. It's Panoramic10. And anybody that's been listening to our podcast previously, we might have said that you can use their bundled up packages plus our promo code. That is not true. We totally lied to you. So if you want to buy an individual piece or a couple pieces, use our promo code. But if you want to get the bundle, they have a bundled up um, selection, which is a, which a, and they have a discount for that. So it's a pretty good deal. The more you buy, the more you save. Pretty much. Absolutely. Sheldon, what uh, what kind of meals have you been making on your end with that, with the diet that you're on? Like, what's some of your favorite stuff that you put together? Nothing. Hear this. Oh, I just want to eat pizza and bread. Garlic bread, man. That's all I crave. <laughs> Sorry, buddy. <laughs> Sent you that picture of the steak I had last night and a big chunk of garlic bread on the side. Yeah, and it, was that, like, homemade or no? Yeah, yeah. It looked freaking awesome. Um, yeah, for meals for me... I've been uh, just pretty straightforward. Lots of meats and uh, vegetables. I um, didn't. I've been doing a lot of like hard-boiled eggs and uh, a lot of different types of salads. And I just like kind of add in chicken and bacon and cheese and stuff. Um, but yeah, other than that, I haven't been. Oh, sliders. Did I tell you about my sliders I made? No. Okay, here we go. So what I did is when I get my I, last year we got sausages made at Overmeyer's and Brandon, and when I um, when they, they had like uh, some like kind of leftover that they just packaged up and it was like a one pound pack. So I had this Italian sausage already mix in the freezer. So I pulled that out and I did like smash burgers and I took, there's a video on YouTube, uh, that hunt fish has. So go and watch that one on YouTube and Josh McFadden does it and he makes like these onions and shit, but I didn't do the onions. I just made smash burgers with venison and then I used like a lettuce for a bun um, some pickled asparagus, bacon, cheese, um, some mayo, a little bit of mayo just because I have to. And, yeah, I ate a couple of them and highly suggest it's a really easy meal. And not only that, when you do the smash burgers, I don't know if you guys have done them, but they, they turn out super juicy. they got a crispy outside and it's super juicy in the middle. So when you're, like, biting in them with, like, a nice, crisp romaine lettuce, it's just, like, a total refreshing meal. I loved it. I would, I would eat that, like, three or four times a week if I could. Man, I'm going to have to throw a few of them down too, uh, for sure. Um, 
so I, I've been kind of doing like the, I don't even know what he calls it, some modified keto slash wannabe carnivore diet. And uh, so I've been, I've been like scheming ways to make just like awesome meals still. And I, I, some stuff is just like, you're, I'm just done with it at, at sometimes. But uh, so anyone that goes on a diet, you know, you go through these phases where you're like craving a bunch of stuff and. And I thought, uh, I had this great idea. Um, I acquired a, uh, this huge beef tenderloin from Josh actually. And, uh, I bought a shitload of bacon so I can like go on this diet and make it like a high fat diet. And so I made some, uh, what do you call those things? Filet mignon. Filet mignon. That's it. And I, I did them up on the pit barrel and they were something else, buddy. Let me tell you. It wasn't like a, a hot sear. It was like right around that 300 mark. Put them on there for like, it was like 15, maybe 20 minutes. Pulled them off. They were just like that beautiful, beautiful, like rare to medium rare inside. It was unbelievable. And uh, I still have a couple in the fridge upstairs. And I've been eating them for breakfast with eggs. Because it's like you get your steak, your bacon, and your eggs with breakfast. So that's a win-win. But everyone that's listening to the podcast or has listened before knows that uh, Pit Barrel Cookers are a massive supporter of this podcast, and uh, we're just going to give them a little shout-out right now. So we've been running them for probably about six months now, and we haven't really really found anything that, that cooks like them. Uh, just a phenomenal cooker, and it's, it's such a simple system to use, holds temperature, cooks evenly, in, and you can uh, load like eight racks of ribs in there, chickens. They have all kinds of accessories to accessorize these things and, and just like use the space that's provided in them. And they're super cool. So if you want to get your hands on one, go to pitbarrelcooker.com. If you're in the United States, I believe they have free shipping across the United States. And if you're in Canada, check out the map on their website and you'll find a list of suppliers in Canada across Canada so check them out we highly recommend them we use them all the time and uh yeah we're still cooking with them through winter time so what does that tell you <laughs> says everything man that yeah. says everything you're good to go well I'm gonna just almost say that this podcast episode coming up uh is a little bit longer one so maybe we should cut this intro a little bit shorter than we normally do I'd like to also say to our audience, to anybody that's listening, downloading, uh, again, thank you very much. Um, if you could take a minute to give us a rating or give us a comment on any platform that you listen to, we appreciate that. That goes a long way for us to keep growing. And I'd also like to just kind of point out we are doing this remotely. We're following all COVID rules, so we're doing it from like different parts of the province right now where sometimes our audio might be a little bit glitchy here and there, and I do apologize for that. We all apologize, me, Tristan, and Chase, for that. But there's not much we can do, and we, we thank you for, uh, you know, keep or for keep tuning in to, to every episode. But we got Doug Dern coming on here right away. Uh, quick, Chase, what's a couple things that you took from it that you can maybe get the this episode started with? Uh, maybe just an intro. In, intro Doug Dern before before the podcast. Tell everyone what he's all about. Oh, man, Doug Dern, he is a uh, huge wildlife advocate and conservation advocate. Also, uh, land manager. 
You'll hear it all in this episode coming up. He's basically he's a whitetail hunter. He's a conservationist. He loves his um, his farm. He's a farmer. He's like a jack of all trades, and he's actually a really good guy with a lot of great insight on the outdoors world. If that's it, that's all. I think we should just uh, roll the podcast. Sounds good. Rock and roll. All right, and joining us on the other line here, we have uh, Doug Dern coming in from uh, Wisconsin today. Is that right, Doug? I am coming in from Wisconsin today, Casanova, beautiful Casanova, Wisconsin, on Lee Lake um, in Wisconsin's Driftless area. And if you're familiar with the state at all, that's the southwest part of the state, oh, sort of between the Wisconsin and Mississippi River. Lee Lake, cool. And uh, how's... Uh... How's things shaking down there for you right now? You got a deer season open? Or are you guys just wrapping up late season? Or well, we have a, a late season archery hunt going on, um, but for the most part, our hunts are, are wrapped up. Most of the deer hunting here, the season starts September fifteenth, and um, you know, and, and at least in this part of the country, that first week in November is our is the is the rut, and then our gun season uh, where you can shoot bucks is uh, the third week in November, the week of Thanksgiving. And then uh, during the month of December, it's all kind of jumbled up, and we have some antlerless hunts. And then uh, bow season um, is uh, opens again after what we call a holiday hunt for, for here um, with guns. So um, there won't be a heck of a lot of deer killed now, you know, in the rest of the month. But, um, yeah, most of our seasons are wrapped up. Um now it's time for, you know, rabbits and, um, and landowners, the squirrel season is actually closed, but landowners can hunt squirrels year round. So, uh, you know, we do a little bit of that and in a few days here, I'm going on a rabbit hunt with beagles. So, you know, kind of going into that small game stuff and, um, and then thinking about turkeys already. Awesome. Right on. Yeah. It sounds like a pretty good transition. Uh, before we get, uh, too far into things here, um, we're going to dive into our five burning questions, as we call them, and uh, just gives the audience a little, a little, a bit of a chance to get to know you a little bit better here. So, um, here we go. If uh, if you had one last concert to go to, and now Doug, I know from uh, some of the work you do at, at Meat Eater, there, you're uh, a big music dude. And uh, what would be the last concert that uh, you'd want to go see? Living or dead? Both. I mean, Either me, or. Obviously, I'd have to be alive, but just <laughs> act up to have to be alive. You can pick either or. Oh, well, you know, Lou Reed once said, it's not that I don't want to play your favorites. It's just that there's so many favorites to choose from. Uh, and I, I'd have to go with the Grateful Dead uh, with Garcia alive. And, and uh, really, the original lineup would, would be a blast. But uh I saw a lot of dead shows in my uh, well well spent youth, so that would probably be the choice. But there's a lot of them. Um, I'd love to see Guy Clark again. Uh, oh man, yeah, John Prine. I'd love to see John Prine again. I saw him last year, not not long before he died. Um, and uh, yeah, I I, I love uh, going to shows and uh, live music is 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 good stuff. So that's a High marks for asking that question, man. <laughs> yeah, it's always uh, good energy at those live live music events. Um, second question, your last meal, what's going to be on the plate, and what are you going to wash that down with? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
Uh, it would be a smorgasbord. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me. And that would include uh, some, obviously, some venison, whitetail, some, some uh, whitetail venison. Um, I would love to have a little uh, beaver in that, um, the, uh, some caribou. Uh, I would have to have uh, Pooter Andy Radzikowski from, uh, he's a friend of Steve Rinella's, be the chef because it would, he would prepare this smorgasbord. And then everything that we've pulled out of the water in Alaska uh, would have to be a part of it. Salmon, halibut, prawns, uh, blue crab, uh, oh man, uh, rockfish. I mean, everything that we've eaten up there that I've eaten up there has just been incredible. So, uh, and then to top it off, there would have to be some during farm grass-fed beef. <laughs> and I imagine my wife would insist that I mix them. Well, it's my last meal, so who cares, right? <laughs> I, I was going to say she didn't insist there needs to be some vegetables in there, but uh, nah, the heck, the vegetables, you know. <laughs> and then what are you going to wash that down with? Well, spotted cow, which is mm. uh, pretty much, or, or maybe Potosi Cave Ale, which are uh, two of my favorite uh, regional beers here. Hey, Chase, didn't um, Greg, like a decoy guy, say he liked spotted cow? Pat Gregory, from... yeah. Pat Gregory was a big fan of the spotted cow. Yeah, well, he's a man of good taste. <laughs> um, now, we know, uh, I get, I'm going to go ahead and make the assumption here that uh, white-tailed deer is, is uh, the species closest and dearest to your heart. But if you had one last dream hunt to go on, uh, what would you be going after? Hmm. I would love to... Uh... In fact, I've been scheming ever since we uh, we did it to get back to Alaska and, and hunt the uh, the caribou migration again. That's really the only big game hunting other than um, whitetails, mostly in my area here. And then once up in the Boundary Waters, um, that caribou hunt was the only one that I've done. I've never had any, you know, enormous desire to uh, to go hunting a bunch out west. I mean, I, I do I go out west trout fishing. Um, but, um, uh, you know, like elk or, or, or mule, I, I mean, I love to go mule deer hunting, but knowing what that experience was like to be kind of dropped, um, uh, in that Alpine tundra in the 40 mile river area and have that herd of caribou come at you and, and, uh, you know, kind of be a part of that migration. I'd love to have that experience again. So Steve Ranella, if you're listening out there, you know, I, I, I'd do that again. <laughs> That that looked like a phenomenal hunt, and it's that's a that's a cool answer. Lots of our guests often come back with like you know something that they haven't done before, but something they've they've dreamt about, and and uh, I like hearing that you know that's some place you'd like to return because obviously you had a very good experience there, and then you kind of know what you're getting into, and you love that. Obviously, something different about that place that really really stuck with you. No, well, it's, uh, you know, wilderness is, uh, is a remarkable thing. And, and, um, uh, having spent uh, time in some other wilderness areas, um, that one was particularly special. So, um, I don't know. I, I, uh, it, it, as I've gotten older, the, uh, the, the, the kill, the harvesting of an animal has become less important to me than the overall experience. And, I would do that hunt again with that group of guys. Um, you know, when you watch the show, there's in that instance, it was Steve and, and my new best friend, Mark Kenyon and I, um, on camera the whole time, but there were four other dudes with us and they're, those guys are 
you know, meat eater staples. It was Giannis mm-hmm. Patelis, Yanni Chimani, um, uh, Chris Skill, uh, Ridge Pounder, who I've, you know, he's worked on a couple of the other shoots. I mean, I think his first one was working with me and Helen, maybe first or second one. And Helen and Brittany um, on the farm. And then, and he and I got to be real tight then. And then Garrett with Dirt Myth was along. And uh, Garrett and I have spent time together. And, and uh, um, so that's three. The fourth one was Brody Henderson. And that was the first time that I'd actually met Brody. But like, I mean, we got tight really fast. And um, <laughs> I have a soft spot for Brody because he, you know, he was like watching me all the time to make sure that I wasn't, you know, something wrong with Doug. He was going to make sure I got taken care of. But, uh, <laughs> He was also uh, he, he's just a really interesting guy. And if you followed his stuff on Mediator, you know, he's uh, he's very accomplished. And then he's a, a da- you know, uh, he's got a couple of, of kids and, and uh, just a really neat guy in so many ways, as all those guys are. But my hunting experiences, most of them um, have been uh, I, I'm not a huge solo hunter. I just wasn't didn't grow up that way. So it's always been a group experience for me. And, uh, that's one of the most enjoyable parts of all of it for me. So, um, yeah, you know, I, I guess the only other, now you've got me thinking about this, man, if you, if I'd have known these ahead of time, I'd have thought about some other stuff, but I'd sure welcome the chance to, to, uh, I mean, I'm back to that living or dead thing. I'd sure welcome the chance to hunt with my dad again, like when I was 14 or 12 years old and, you know, with him. Um, cause I, uh, I'd asked him a few more questions and uh, I learned an awful lot about um, not just about the outdoors and, and the land and all of that, but also just sort of a, an attitude. The first thing that my dad um, that I remember him teaching me about hunting was, you know, you're not out there hunting just for yourself. You're out there because he always group hunted um, and they used to go up North and he said, you're, you know, you're hunting for the other guy too. Um, so. Man, that's a great mindset and a great, uh, great message. I guess, I guess to pass on to everybody listening here to appreciate those days and hang on to them if you if you still got them. Um, we'll uh, dive into the meat, meat meat eater crew here a little bit. And uh, if you're if you're going on that dream hunt and you have to pick one of these guys, one of these fellows to, to join you. <laughs> You're gonna put me on the spot. Huh? Now I'm I'm not gonna make you decide how you're gonna choose whether it's it's physique and athletic ability or or uh, personality or what have you. But uh, if you had to choose between Steve Yanni and uh, Callahan, who would you choose to head out there with? This might be well, a little bit too on the spot. I don't know. <laughs> no, no, it's fine. I- I'm happy. I'm happy to answer each one of those guys. I have spent time alone with, and uh, you know, hunting, fishing, you know, whatever. In fact, I remember uh, uh, first time I really hung out with Cal was up in uh, at 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 the Ranella Brothers Shack, and we were just up there for a week with you know a few dudes, and and Cal and I ended up going and pulling uh, crab pots together, and we're up in this big fjord, you know, and. And we're pulling those crab pots. And he, in fact, he's got these pictures of me that are, you know, sort of makes me look like the Jolly Green Giant and stuff. And, um, but as we were going along, uh, I just cut the motor on the boat, on the skiff that we were using and just let it, because you could see the pots, you know, the buoys up above, uh, ahead of us and just let it coast in. And we both were just completely silent. And as we kind of pulled up to the thing real slow, he turned around and said, 
I could be a happy hermit here. <laughs> and Cal's, Cal is one of those guys that, um, you know, there's this old thing about if you don't understand, if you can't like hang with me in silence, you can't hang with me while we're talking. Yeah, I don't know. Some, I'm sure it's a thing that's more about like relationships with women or whatever, but um but it's just, it was never uncomfortable. It was never an uncomfortable silence with that guy, especially in a you know place like that. And he's just really, um, I've hung out with him several times since. And he's just very, uh, he's a really appreciative guy of the, the outdoors and, and all of that. And, and you can just see him sort of taking it in. Giannis is the world's most affable man. He is the nicest person you will ever meet. And it's not bullshit. It's There's nothing fake about it or anything. He's just... He is just the world's most affable man. He's just so likable and so, um, and he's also interested and interesting. And he's got that cool voice too that goes up when he talks like that. Um, and Ranello, well, Steve's a pain in the ass. I mean, I don't know what else to tell you about him, but um, he is my favorite pain in the ass. I, 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 uh, I would, I would ask you to give me three hunts, and I would go with each one of them separately. Good answer. Good answer. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, my my last question for you here is actually uh, a two parter, and the first part is, what's your favorite piece of hunting gear? Huh, my favorite piece of hunting gear besides a firearm? Wow, that's the second part of the question. What's your favorite oh, firearm? <laughs> I see, I see. Um, I really uh, have come to love having good optics, a good pair of binoculars. Um, Vortex is my brand of choice and they're, they're a, it's a wonderful company and, and, um, they're from here in Wisconsin. And I mean, I, I, I they're dear friends of mine and they, I mean, not only are they dear friends of mine, they have tremendous products. Um, the thing that I've kind of gotten attached to is, um, it's the Fury line of binoculars with the, um, uh, rangefinder built in. So you don't have to have those things be separate, even though it's a little heavier. It's just like, I'm not really good at having too much stuff hanging on me. So that's a really nice, and they've got a new model that just came out, but, um, I have some of their, the, when it, that thing first came out, they, they got some of that to me. And, um, I just, I, I just cannot be a, without a good pair of optics and, and the range finding, uh, options really important too. Nice. Uh, we, uh, We've been slowly switching most of our gear over to uh, Vortex stuff too, and it's it's been a game changer for us growing up. Yeah. Kind of, we had some some junkier uh, like binos and scopes and stuff, and it's it's been a big change having uh, good clear optics out there. Well, you know the thing, you know, I mean, I talk about those guys all night um, and their products and stuff. Um, I mean, I've known them. I I, I introduced them and Steve. Um, I take great pride in that and I remind that of them, mind them of that anytime I need anything, but, <laughs> um, but, uh, uh, you know, having watched that company grow from, I mean, really from just the, from the beginning to what it is now, I mean, it's a juggernaut now, right. Um, they pay attention to what folks are, you know, talking about, but, but people that I've talked to in the, in the industry who like rep products and stuff, they're always like, you know, for the, this level of this company or the cost price point, the lower one of Vortex is about the same. And so it's always, you can just do so well with their, their products. Um, I often um, get some of the, like the Diamondback uh, equipment, Diamondback scopes and binoculars and stuff for, uh, for fundraisers and that kind of thing. And, and people are just marvel at that. And that's, you know, that's, 
step above entry level, but I mean, you're talking about, you know, a couple hundred bucks for that stuff and, and, uh, you know, very, very affordable. And it's just, they just figure, have got it figured out. Yeah. For, for what you're getting there, it's a super affordable product and, and a quality piece, especially, I mean, the lifetime warranty on that stuff is, is, uh, how, how do you beat that? Right. So a buddy of mine, um, I don't know that he even knows anybody at Vortex, but, um, he's got from their original company, Eagle Optics. He had a pair of binos that the, the, where the harness hooks on broke and he called him. He says, Hey, can I get this fixed? And they're like, why don't you bring it in? And so he brings it in and they're like, eh, okay, well here, <laughs> and they give him a brand new pair of, um, I don't remember which which one it was, but it was you know higher value than the the ones that he had, and I was just like, that's under lifetime warranty too. The Eagle Optics, you know, from from way back when, and they're like, yeah. So, um, I, I I I'm just I've been really impressed with them, and I can't you know I mean I, I obviously they've been good to me, and they've been good to Meat Eater and Steve and everything, but um, but it's a hell of a lot easier to uh, speak that way about a company when you know their products are so good, and and that really is the that really is the thing. And, and, you know, I, I remember saying to, to one of my contacts there, God, it'd be really nice to have a, can't you do the thing where it's, it's just like the range finders built right in They're Like, Oh yeah, man, we're going to have that in a year. So, and sure, yeah, sure. You know, a year later they had it. And I mean, it wasn't because on my suggestion, but I wasn't, apparently wasn't the first one who thought of that, you know, <laughs> but um, you know, I mean, the, the point is, is that they don't rest on their laurels. Right. I mean, they, they're, they're, um, you know, kind of keeping up and, and all that. So it's pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah, certainly got to evolve with that industry. Um, okay, last part of that question: What's your uh, favorite or best deer rifle that you use? Well, my daddy once said to me, "Hell, I don't think there's any other kind of rifle than a .30-06, as far as the caliber goes." And for the longest time in our, everybody had a .30-06, and Dad used to say, "I was, you know, that way we don't get any bullets mixed up here on the on the table or whatever," but um. And I've got an old um, Remington 760 pump that I've had for a long time. And I've got a, an old uh, 30 out six. And I've got an old Enfield World War II sporterized. This thing is like carrying a, you know, a small village around with you. It's so heavy, but um, it is a really good shooting gun. Um, but uh, a few years ago, I had the opportunity to get a, to get a, a rifle before we went on that Alaska trip. And, uh, Giannis, you know, was telling me and, uh, you know, to go to the company that they were working with at the time and, you know, check one out. And I was like, well, I want a 300 Win Mag. He calls me up. He goes, Doug, what do you want a 300 Win Mag for? And uh, I'm like, I don't know, because I don't have one. You know, everything's a 30. He says, yeah, you want something you can shoot? Think about that 6.5 Creed more. And uh, that's what I got in a lightweight hunter for backpacking. And that's kind of become my go. My daughter killed her first um deer with it because it's you know it's a lighter rifle it's a flat shooting son of a gun and i know everybody it's also the caliber du jour these days um but um man i, I like and I, I like everything about that that caliber um it's got plenty of wallop i mean i've killed deer with it i you know and well it's, i shot that caribou with it mm. um of course caribou was only 75 yards away so here i got a rifle i can shoot 800 yards with you know and uh it was right on top of us when I killed it. But. Well, it's hard to uh, it's hard to dispute anything uh, besides performance and uh, dependability, right, and accuracy. So yeah, yeah, it is what it is. So obviously, 
I'm assuming there's going to be a lot of people listening here that kind of have a pretty good idea of uh, who you are. And, and uh, I mean, many outdoors folks follow the, the meat eater stuff and you, you're, you're uh, a significant, uh, you have a significant role in, uh, in lots of meat eaters content and lots of their, uh, some of their shows and stuff that they do. Um, but how did you kind of get started in, uh, becoming a conservationist in the outdoors and this land management stuff? Where did that all start for you? Well, I was born to it. Um, so where I'm sitting right now here in Casanova, Wisconsin is about half, less than a half a mile from the house that I grew up in. Um, and then our farm is two miles, um, out of town. Um, the farm has been in my family for, uh, we're on on our 118th year now and uh you know my great-grandfather was a lumberman uh he had a sawmill and they did logging and i never knew him and he also had a railroad and then my grandfather a world war one vet uh, bought that farm um through from my my uh great-grandfather and then uh my my folks bought it from them so i kind of grew up with it you know i grew up around um the idea of the lumber industry, you know, you didn't really, you didn't really kind of understand it. I mean, you know, what the hell, you're just a kid, right? Um, but um, and our farm was our, our our farm was a dairy farm when I was a kid, and it was carved out of 400 acres, and um, even now, 240 acres of it is still woods. Um, so 60 acres of pasture, 100 acres of uh, 100 acres of tillable land, and and we're in the driftless area, which is real hilly. You know, anything that was too steep just got left in woods. But then we've got some chunks of timber that um, that when my great-grandpa bought it, there had been a straight line wind. I found all this out. And um, so there's a big flat area, this ridge, that didn't get cleared and put fields in it. And so, I mean, I heard those stories from when I was a kid. Um, and, uh, you know, so you, you grew up around something that was pretty well managed. Um, you know, you just kind of, and, and you were taught about it. Um, not like intentionally, right? I mean, it wasn't like, okay, and today's lesson is going to be timber stand improvement. You know, um, I never heard that term until, you know, 20 years ago or 25 years ago. But so that's kind of how I got started in it. We worked on the farm. We lived in town and worked on the farm, you know, um, picking rock. I mean, why do you pick rock? Well, because it's the right best thing to do for the, for the fields, right? How come we're keeping the cattle out of there? Well, so they're not down in the creeks all the time, you know, why are we building fence? You know, that kind of thing. So it was just sort of became second nature. Um, my, I, and, you know, I just, people will walk through the woods or walk through the farm with me and I'll just start talking about this brush and, you know, what, you know, everything from, you know, multiflora rose to, to service berries to, uh, uh, viburnums and you know just the various dogwoods and the various plants that we have and then you about the various trees well how'd you learn all this stuff oh, I don't know, you know it wasn't like i had a i didn't have a dendrology class to learn the trees i had a grandfather and a father you know who expected you to know what that stuff was and i realized um like with my daughter she can my daughter's a public health professional in chicago but she can she can identify trees at 60 miles an hour on the highway <laughs> like eleanor what kind of tree is that and she'll you know she had pretty close usually um because that's just kind of how she was brought up too you know and he's talking about trees and stuff so that's how i got started in it um and then when i was a uh wandering 
trying to figure out what I was going to do when I grew up. Uh, I worked for a reforestation company and traveled around the South and, and hand planted pine trees. And that was, uh, you know, that had a significant, uh, impact on me in a lot of different ways. Um, and, uh, I mean, there's trees out on our farm that I planted when I came back from that. It was 40 years ago, man. There's trees out there that I planted 40 years ago. And, um, you know, and there's, there's some pretty big trees now. And um, you can't help but appreciate that or grow up in that, or, you know, understand it as you grow up. In it, and then these things are growing around you, right? I have this mantra and T-shirts, as a matter of fact, that we're we're doing some uh, work, uh, some volunteer work with, um, called uh, and the, and the phrase is "plant trees, grow memories," um, and that just sort of came to me because I have so many memories, um, not only on our farm but in other places where I planted planted trees. Um, the other conservation work, um, oh, you know, managing properties for other people and helping them understand that a lot of that is just an extension of, I, I have a couple of degrees, um, one's in history and I was a high school history teacher for a number of years, but in, in the summers I worked for both a landscape company and a, I was on a trail maintenance crew, um, in the white mountains of New Hampshire. And I also have an earth science degree, which is what it sounds like. It's like about dirt and stuff, right? And then, uh, uh, and and so eventually I got into horticulture and and turf management. Um, it's what happens when you get to be sixty-two years old, fellas. You know, you do a lot of shit in your life, and you know, and if you just kind of keep bebopping around, you you know, and, and trying different things, um, you you, you know, you, you learn about a lot of different things, but really in my life, there's in sort of this one vein through it all. And that is outdoors and conservation. And, um, so yeah, that's, that's a long rambling answer, but Lots. get used to it. <laughs> well, we're used to it. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, I got a question there too, Doug is, um, you kind of uh, mentioned that you're kind of growing up in it. Was there like a chance or not a chance, but was there a time in your, in your life and in your career when there's like this aha moment where, you realize that you could be a voice to help other people or to, you know, help the outdoor industry or the deer populations, et cetera. Like, or was that like right from day one, uh, working on the farm and doing everything else? Um, no, man. Um, that, that's, that's a really good question. Um, and, uh, so 90, 1990 moved back from new England back to the Midwest. And, uh, for five years when I was in new England, I didn't deer hunt once. And the reason for it was, in re retrospect, I wish I would have, but I was a high school teacher and a basketball coach and softball coach and whatever the hell else they needed. And, um, you know, it just didn't, I, I didn't have a lot of time for that. And then I got way, got, got deep into downhill skiing too. And, uh, cause, Hey, you're in the mountains and ski area. Sure. Let's learn how to do that. Um, and, uh, and then the people that I was hanging out with weren't really that into hunting in retrospect. I wish I would have whitetail hunted out there because that would have been some of my favorite uh it still is i love tracking deer and, and doing you know doing some of that stuff but in the, the big woods out there, i see but there just weren't that many of them so i never felt like wow there's plenty of them i mean hell i saw more moose than i saw deer out there um so anyway i came back and oh geez i don't know we moved up in uh i was up in door county which is the thumb of wisconsin goes up into lake michigan and green bays on one side and, and lake michigan's on the other side and um eventually i established a uh uh landscape company up there because i'd been doing that in the summers in new england and through that 
um, we bought a little farm up there, a little piece of property. And I started working with the local conservation department. And uh, like I said, back whenever, you know, I was 20, I had done this uh, reforestation stuff where you just jamming trees into the ground, you know, um, you know, just banging them into the ground. If, if you ever hand planted pine trees, anybody who's worked for a reforestation company knows what that's like. Um, and, uh, you know, so I started doing some of the, we, 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 I really got into naturalization and restoration as a part of our landscape work out there because I had done this trail work and I'd learned how to build, uh, dry laid wall, stone walls and stuff in new England, like the Robert Frost poem about, you know, good fences, make good neighbors and mend your fences and all that. So, um, I did a lot of that kind of, uh, you know, rock stacking and building those walls and that kind of thing. And it's just all stuff, all kind of ties together, you know, where you're working with the land, um, you know, and I grew up here in the land of Leopold, you know, I mean, uh, Baraboo and where the shack is, is 30 miles pointing to my left. <laughs> it's 30 miles that way. Um, 30 miles the other way is Frank Lloyd Wright's place. So, it, you know, it's kind of an interesting uh, uh, position that we're in here, but so realizing that I could be a voice or, you know, be a part of, of doing that, it sort of evolved from helping people on a micro scale, naturalization, restoration up there in Door County. We did a bunch of dune restoration work, planting native trees, um, working, like I said, there's a lot of stone up there too. So we did a lot of that kind of stone work. So our landscape, the landscape design work and installs that we were doing were very natural. And so that lends itself to using native plants and that sort of thing. Um, doing this work on my own farm and we were improving habitat, working with the local conservation department. I'm like, you know, this is something we could do as a part of the landscape business too. landscape land management. You know, it's not a big, um, leap. So, um, so eventually, um, I ended up down here, um, 25 years ago uh, in the Madison area and I was still in the green industry. I've been in the green, the landscape business, um, you know, off, I mean, my whole life, I guess, you know, you start with the farm and all of that, but, um, <clears throat> you know, there's a lot of that deer management stuff was going on then, you know, 30 years ago, 25, 30 years ago. And, um, been the whole big giant buck stuff. And I'm really interested in that and, you know, still in, um, but what I got real interested in is when you start seeing things like, um, invasive species and the effect that an invasive species, the negative effect that an invasive species will have on a habitat. And you start, you know, understanding the beauty of nature and then, you know, trying to help it along and working with it, Leopold, right? Work with nature, not against it. Um, or, I mean, he says it more eloquently, but I'm always just paraphrasing that stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, you start doing that and you begin to realize, well, wait a minute, this is what we should be thinking about more. And let's not be planting uh, I mean, I'm killing barberries in our woods. Let's not be planting barberries in the landscape. They're going to end up wild in the woods causing trouble um, or honeysuckles or, you know, any of that stuff. I realized that some of what we were planting or that was typically planted in landscapes was ends up being a problem in our natural environment. So, you know, stop that, you know, um, just because it's cool somewhere else doesn't mean it's cool here because, you know, um, so I didn't really have a, it was really an evolution. It wasn't like, yes, this is the business that I want to get into. Um, it was sort of a slow evolution. And even now my business continues to evolve, you know, um, doing more consulting. Now I have a consult tomorrow with a guy in West Virginia. Um, 
Hey, Scott. Um, and I've never seen his property, but, you know, through the wonders of, of uh, well, Onyx maps and those sort of things, I can take a look at a property, you know, and, and I'm not necessarily seeing, saying, here's what you got to do or here's what you should do on your property, right? I think it's much more about um, helping people sort of realize a, a, a philosophy or an attitude. Um, and so, and, and then having, helping them become conservationists in their own place, you know, learning about your own place and, and, you know, what might be, and who you can work with there to help, to help you with that. Um, so I, I, I've become a conservation philosopher more than anything else now, I guess. So, yeah, that's super cool. Cause, uh, Nick, we were talking Chase and I, before you were even coming on and getting on and what we really wanted to talk about. And I think like there's a there's a big uh, let's just say in the last like generation there's a big loss in just talking about land management and you know there's so many people right now that can just like basically get up and like for instance in Manitoba here can go get a hunter safety and get go get licensed for a firearm and they can go hunting without even knowing what they're stepping on where they're going and even like how to respect other people's land and not only that but public lands right so getting on was like super cool for us and uh, and it's and it's a great voice to have uh, especially in a in a totally different region than what we're familiar with so it gives a different perspective um but yeah like the the one i can't remember what the saying is and it was on that video on youtube with vortex that you did and it was uh, uh i can't remember the first part of it but the, the last part is like it's our turn oh well i can help you with that man <laughs> <laughs> it's uh in fact i can show you a t-shirt and stuff like that it's not ours it's just our turn and that really is um you know when you were asking me about the aha moment now yeah. and i this is one i maybe maybe should have mentioned we were doing some work in our woods uh laying it out about 15 years ago oh man maybe not 15 years ago but um and and like i was telling you there's part of our woods is big flat you know, ridge top, and there's, you know, most of those ridge tops are cleared in their cornfields now around here, right? And then the side hills where the woods is. Well, this is this big, beautiful red and white oak, you know, 125 years old. These were saplings when my great grandfather bought the place. These trees were, you know, giants when we started cutting them. Well, interestingly, so my dad, who died just uh, four years ago, and he was 92 when he died, I mean, he grew up with those trees, right? Um, and as they got bigger and, and stuff was managed pretty, that, that land, th those trees were, whatever management was at that time, they were practicing as good a management as you, you, you could. Maybe there wasn't as, you know, as big an understanding, but, um, but, but, you know, just intuitively, those guys did a hell of a job. I mean, they just really did. I mean, I, you know, I, I just marvel sometimes at what my great grandfather and grandfather and father, I mean, and my grandmothers and, and you know, mother and all that too were a part of it. But, you know, for the most part, it was, those were the, was the dudes who were doing the work. Um, but how they had done that. And I, I'm walking out of the woods with uh, uh, one of our Department of Natural Resources foresters, become a very good friend of mine, actually. And uh, we had just been marking trees and remarking trees and talking about how we're going to do this and how we can get the most, you know, best oak regeneration, which is something we're losing in our landscape here and how we can do all that. And uh, we had finished our work up there and we we're walking out of the woods and we get to the top of this hill and, and we just paused for a minute. We're just about to go down and Mike kind of turned around and looked back and he goes, you know, I, it's so cool 
one of my favorite things about working with people, especially people like you, is that you're, you know, you're 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 open to these ideas. I mean, we're going to cut some big trees, and that woods was going to be very different. And it's you know, it's a very aggressive approach to that. But I've got the perspective of knowing that what that looked like a hundred over a hundred years ago, right? From my grandpa and, and dad and stuff. And so we're going to be cutting these trees. And what we're doing is to regenerate oaks at a hundred years from now, it would look similar again. So that's, that's the intention. And so I just really applaud that you and your family are willing to do this. And I, you know, at that moment, it's like, I have my grandfather, my great grandfather and my father all there. And I said, well, I'm really just the next one here. And, you know, I just don't feel like it's ours so much as it's just our turn. And he looks at me and says, you ought to write that down. <laughs> and I did. And, um, you know, I mean, it's been, it's become my motto, um, my conservation motto. And, I, and it's been picked up by a lot of people too, which is, you know, really gratifying to have that kind of, you know, um, effect. So, yeah, it really is, you know, what's the conservation, conservation really is really what can we do now to not only improve things now, but to affect having a positive uh, effect on the future. I think that, that that model is just the perfect way to really get somebody to stop and think and really realize what they're doing. Cause lots of people have the mindset of just being like, okay, how can I get in there? How can I shoot a big buck? And how can I shoot a big buck next year? And they're not really thinking about, you know, what can I do to improve stuff? Like you said, for myself and for future generations. I'm, I'm kind of curious here, Doug, um, about the, your family farm. When your great grandfather purchased that land, was that, uh, was it like a piece of forest or is it kind of similar, uh, similarly, uh, laid out as it is today still? Oh, no. Um, it was, it was, uh, the, the 400 acres. Now I've, I've only seen aerials from the thirties, but what we call our big ridge, which is kind of a big 40 acre field, it's real long, big, long contour strips that, you know, that sort of quintessential farm, long contour strips in the thirties. When my dad was a kid, that was all woods. Um, the easiest wood. So my great grandfather's sawmill was about a mile away on ironically enough, Duran road. Um, and, uh, so this was, uh, uh, this land was, um, bought, was purchased to, it was nearby where he already had the, the sawmill and, and, and other land that he owned and he'd buy forties and eighties and they'd cut it and then they'd sell it to somebody who's going to make it into a field or a farm or whatever. Right. This was a big enough chunk of land that, um, he figured this would supply their mill for, you know, it was a long time and it did, um, and now it supplies other mills. But um, so of, the, like I said, 240 acres of woods, 160 acres, some of it's bottom land. So there was wood there, woods there, but it was you know, going to be more like willows and that sort of thing. But according to my dad, even the other, um, and I, you know, I just wish I could talk to my grandpa one more time, you know, because I'd ask him a hell of a lot of questions about, you know, certain areas. But, and, and having looked at aerial photographs, um, like I said, the earliest ones are in the thirties. You can see that one, that big Ridge. So that's 40 acres. That was all wooded. Um, there were a couple of side Hills. Some of it was, um, so most of it had was cleared, I guess. And I'm to answer your question, more of it could, could have been cleared for farming. It just didn't make sense at the time, but initially it was mostly timber. Interesting. 
Um, and then back to the the kind of land management side of things. How have things changed um, in in your views over the last decade or two? Just like your approaches and tactics to to land management. Has there been uh, any significant shifts, or has it been pretty straight and steady? Well, so when you own a piece of property like this, and you know, I mean, you guys are up in you had, like big wheat country up there, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's yeah a lot of, um. So you know, land um is 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 there's a real value to it, but the value has changed in uh, pretty dramatically in the last, well, in my lifetime. So, but let's say in the last thirty to forty years, when I was a kid, and fellas, when you get older, you say that a lot. When I was a kid, um, but when I was a kid, I don't remember. Well, I do remember very specifically the first person who wasn't from around here who bought land up in our area, you know, who didn't like live on it and have a little farm or whatever. I mean, it was a bunch of little dairy farms when I was a kid. Now you got to go a hell of a long ways to get to a dairy farm around here. Um, and so what's happened in the last, you know, 30 years, 40 years, and more so even in the last 10 or 20 is land ownership in our general area has changed. And, and, um, and I'm not, you know, we could, you can talk about value judgments all the time, but it's right or wrong, just the way it is. You know, I mean, that's kind of how I look at everything. And, and then, okay, here's the situation we find ourselves in. What can we do to make it better or, you know, in, in the longer term? So um, in the eighties, for instance, um, we quit dairy farming. Um, my brother was the last one to dairy farm and it was a 40 cow, you know, milk cow barn. And that was just all it was ever going to be. Um, farm didn't know us anything, you know, the farm had paid for itself. Um, and, uh, that's a pretty remarkable thing. You know, my folks bought it from my grandparents and my generation, you know, <laughs> worked on it, you know, and we, you know what we got paid, we got a roof over our head, right. Uh, and something to eat. And that was just the way it was. And, but now in my generation, we own that and there isn't any, and my folks didn't need to sell it to, for their retirement because of some other work that they, they both had jobs that didn't involve the farm. Um, my dad was a, a postal worker and my mom had a variety of jobs. Um, so the farm just paid for itself and it helped the rest of you know, us kids, however. So my, my brothers and sisters and I um, have inherited it. Um, you know, that's, it's our legacy. It's our family legacy. You know, short, short story. My, uh, I had a younger brother. My youngest brother, Matthew, died 25 years ago, which um, put a lot of this, uh, a lot of things in motion, but he died in a car accident. He was the, the, the one who was living around here. And at that time I was living up in Door County and, um, he died in a car accident, but he was living on the farm and, you know, he was really into hunting and, and, uh, he was like the one of the six of us who stayed here. And, uh, so and it was sort of like, well, the farm's going to take care of itself. You know, Matt's there. There's some beef cattle on it. There's this wonderful program in the U.S. called the Conservation Reserve Program that you can put your cropland into. And essentially, you pay a rental fee by the government to put it into conservation um, plantings. And in our case, it's mostly seeded down to, you know, various, um, some of its prairie, some of its um, mixed grasses and forbs. And anyway, um, and that was what it was in. And then my dad had some beef cattle and that was kind of it. And Matt was working for an electrician and living in the farmhouse and grooving out, you know. And uh, 
we didn't really, didn't really make us make us uh we didn't really have to it didn't, we weren't forced to like make a decision about the farm and then matt died and then things kind of changed really dramatically and that's sort of when i began to step forward again about taking the stuff that i had learned working in different parts of the country and, and then on this other place this place i have in our county and then bringing it to to our property um and so it's really been for the last 25 years mostly based in conservation and the thing is you know 40 years ago when i was 20 years old or 22 years old i could have bought the farm and farmed it and reasonably paid for it you know that you could you could do farm work you know but, and, and and you could pay for a piece of property like that maybe not the big woods or anything because the productivity isn't isn't quite there but you know that could all have been worked out my brother and i had actually talked about it a bunch my older brother and uh but there's nothing now there's nothing that you could do on that farm in terms of sort of traditional land practices or land work working the land that would justify what its value is on the open market. And the reason for that is these folks from away, good, bad, or indifferent, again, right? They see it as a different, there's a different value to it. So land prices really aren't based on the return on investment. This is one of the things that I actually talk with land management clients a lot, a lot about, um, especially ones who are, oh, hey, I'd like to buy some land. And boy, this seems like a good deal. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> depends on what you want from it. You know, I mean, you expect a return on investment. You're really looking at ag, ag land, right? Because you got a yearly revenues from that. Um, and so for a while, there were a lot of people who were buying, and it's still going on. We had uh, 200 acres just next to us that sold, and it was high enough price that it wasn't anybody from around here who bought it. It was a guy from away who, that's what we call folks who don't live here, <laughs> um, folks who buy, you know, from away, um, who bought it as an investment, and he paid cash. You know, he dropped a million dollars cash. Well, I can guarantee you, you could, we could put all the money that people got in their bank around here in Casanova. It'd take us a while to, get to add it up to a million dollars, you know. But this dude just walked in and bought it. He's going to make a return on it, but he's just going to rent it out. So, you know, that's one of the big changes. And on ours, the, the carrying costs for having timberland or conservation land, there's, it's, it's expensive to own that land. The taxes are higher than on ag land and there isn't any revenue or there's very little revenue unless you get into you know, leasing and that sort of thing for hunting. Um, and so it makes you think about it differently. And I just feel really fortunate to be somebody who's a sort of a, you know, I'm a middle, solid, middle, middle-class person. Um, I mean, I, I, I own 30 acres. My wife and I own 30 acres adjacent to the farm that we bought, but that's more like the size of properties that people are buying, 30 to 80 acres, you know, not 400, not unless you're, you know, I mean, you know, we're talking about a couple million bucks, you know, to to buy to buy 400 acres around here, and 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 so how do you how do you justify that? You know, and 40 years ago, you could have bought that land for a hell of a lot less than that, you know. So and it could have paid for itself. So there's nothing on that that land that justifies that value unless it's pure ag land, which is what the investors are trying to buy. So conservation land isn't really not that great of a return. So, yeah, it's, it's, I don't know if that answered the question, but even like uh, in Manitoba here, we have like the Great Plains, basically a prairie that butts up against um, like Canadian Shield land. So like kind of like the southwestern corner of Manitoba, it's it's very agriculture 
there's lots of bush and sloughs and ponds and stuff like that. But the, the thing where the catch 22 thing is that, um, you, anybody that owns like pasture land or, or bushland, um, and, and the next farmer beside you might want to be expanding, he'll pay good money for that bushland just to bulldoze it and create agriculture. So it gets really tricky when you, you know, not only do we have a lot of private land in our province where we got to ask for permissions, but at the same time, we're like, man, quit freaking bulldozing all the land or all yeah. the trees, you know? So yeah. it's a really tricky subject, especially up here. So, Well, right, because isn't that interesting? You know, it's like, well, the only, only way you can justify the money for it is to bulldoze it and turn it into, um, into ag land. Here in the Driftless area, again, because of the topography, there's some of the land that just will never be anything but a side hill with trees on it or a you know a valley with trees on it and because by the time you get back in there to make it worthwhile you know a big field by us is 40 acres you know i mean i've with 100 acres that we um that we actually have as cropland is um four different areas so you know that average is about 25 i mean if one's 40 you know there's got to be a couple that are smaller than that and um and so that's a very different you know with today's farming it's it's you know it's very it's very different um, and so our farms were growing up. I thought, I, I mean, in, you know, and of course this is nostalgia, but growing up, our farms made nothing but sense, right? It was a self-contained piece of property that you had cattle, you had pigs, you had chickens, you, know, you had orchard, um, everything kind of got done there. You know, you raised a, f- a few beef, everything just sort of was sort of a self-contained, sustainable little property. You know, you weren't, you know, just planting acres of corn and beans or wheat or whatever, and then harvesting that for it to go somewhere else. Unfortunately, that is a sum of what's happening now. I mean, I, we could rent our, that land out. There's plenty of guys who'd come in and, and, you know, and farm it. But um, I like the conservation end of it. And the CRP pays, you know, not as much as if we were renting it out to somebody who wanted to just farm it like that. But, you know, I, I feel like, um, financial viability for us is 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 important, you know, that the the farm's financially viable because there's yearly costs and all of that. But um, but because of the situation that we're in, um, we don't have to maximize the profits. And as long as we don't kind of go down that rabbit hole too far, we'll never have to do that, right? Um, and because the woodland was managed really well, and as I was telling you, we were cutting some of these big trees. That money most of that money got set aside for the long-term um, sustainability of the property too. Um, you know, rather than, well, let's all just divide it up and go to the casino and put it all on black or whatever, you know I mean? Um, you know, I mean, and that, or my, and again, my folks didn't, didn't quote unquote need that money. They, you know, they were, they were children of the depression, man. Those, those folks, they could buy it next to nothing and, and really just kind of were that way, you know? Uh, they were frugal and all of that, and they wanted us to have this place. And so we've really um, embraced that that idea. So, um, but financial viability is important in land management. You know, it's uh, you, you, there's a subject that we, you know, you could talk about for hours. I mean, my land management clients, <clears throat> you know, they vary to some very wealthy people to folks who just, you know, wanted to have a little bit of land and, you know, and what can we, what can we do to make it better? Um, but then I, you know, I talked to him about financial viability and what, what makes the most, or is that a concern? Well, no, we're willing to 
put a certain amount of money into it, you know, um, and all those sort of things are, are important to understand. That's, that's super interesting. And it sounds like you are in a very special situation there. And, and, uh, I'm glad that you're the one at the reins there in that property. Cause I feel like, you know, you're really doing that property justice as in like owning it as a, uh, conservation property and really taking the best care of it that you can to to keep it that way well that's nice of you to say i mean and 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 that's the attitude that doesn't mean i I don't make mistakes you know every day or or, well okay maybe i don't make them every day but there it's you know sort of constant improvement and really one of the things that i talk about in in management land management is that that a, a management plan needs to be adaptable in other words you know, things change. Here's a great example. We, you know, 20 years ago, we didn't have the emerald ash borer, which is killing all the freaking ash trees from the East Coast and moving this way. Well, you're really going to manage because they haven't figured out how to stop it. You're not really going to manage for ash anymore until they get that figured out. So if you're, you know, you should adjust your plan to deal with that. Um, 40 years ago, if you were planting trees, deer weren't really, deer browse weren't, wasn't really a problem. Now it is. So you need to adapt your management plan accordingly. Um, Erosion, um, invasive species, things change. I mean, so you lay out a plan, um, but our right on over there in my files, our our management plan for the farm, it says right on it, the Duran Family Farm Adaptive Management Plan. Hmm. And so, you know, Bob Dylan, I've seen him a bunch of times, but that is somebody that I'd also – I just, you know, I, I could sit at a Bob Dylan concert forever, but um, I saw him with the Grateful Dead too. But he said it used to go like this and now it go, or it used to go like that. Now it goes like this. And he was talking about one of his songs that, you know, you didn't recognize it anymore. But, but the point was, is that it's changed, you know, things change. And so we need to adapt with them. Not like, oh, I long for the good old days of, well, you know, the good old days ain't coming back or and let's think about what those good old days were, too, you know. Um, land management. I'll give you a great example. Uh, we have a, a stream that goes through our farm. And when I was a kid, um, there were, you know, we had a lot of dairy cattle. So you had, you know, 50, 40 to 50 cows that were getting milk. Well, in order to have 40 cows milking all the time, you got to have 60 or 70 of them, right? And then you've got to have the young stock. I mean, and these are these numbers, this this animal husbandry game that I play in my head all the time. When you start thinking about it, you start talking about big bucks and stuff. It's a whole other conversation. But but the, but this stuff applies, right? So in order to have 40 cows milking all the time, because a cow doesn't milk 365 days a year, she needs about three months off, and then she's going to have a calf, and, you know, you're going to go through all that, right? So in order to have – you've got to have more than 40 to have 40 milking all the time. So – all of a sudden, 60 acres of pasture isn't very big, you know? And so, you know, you've got 100, 115 head. You, all of a sudden, there's fences along the wood line, and we got cattle pasturing in the woods, and, and you're feeding, you know, and, and, and then they're in the creek. And I can remember our creek, creek, depending on where you grew up, and I grew up around here, so we say creek. Um, <laughs> and uh, the bottom where, like, the cattle would come at the end of the day was just flat. The stream would get there, and it just flattened out. And it was, you know, 25 feet wide and two inches deep. Well, that, that's no trout stream, you know. Um, yet there, it was at one time a trout stream. It is a trout stream again because we pasture it differently now. 
And I haven't even, I, I've done a little bit of work on the edges and, and that sort of stuff, but I pasture it differently, rotational grazing, a hell of a lot fewer animals. And all of a sudden, instead of that wide, flat, it, it, you know, nature has a way of, of healing itself. And if you go on my Instagram account, you can see some of these, these cricks from time to time. Um, and and they're, now they're, they're narrow and they're deep and fast. And, you know, so that was sort of, sort of lucky. I mean, not lucky, but because you begin to realize it after a while. Right. And so you, you adapt your management accordingly. Um, like, Hey, this is important. Water quality is important. And quite honestly, there's programs, um, natural resource conservation service, which is our, our agency programs. So you can get involved with it. Then they'll help you, um, improve that. And, and so, you know, you adapted that management and as long as you can make it financially viable, why wouldn't you? Right. Definitely. Um, Manitoba, we have a, we're pretty lucky in the, in the sense that we do have quite a few public lands to access, but there's obviously like Sheldon said, um, plenty of private land that, that people hunt and people own and, uh, mixed agriculture, pasture land, and some, some wildlands too. Um, what are like some basic things that people can do to, to like help improve, uh, the ecosystem for say white-tailed deer habitat in those lands? Is there anything super simple that, uh, jumps out at you? Well, there's, yeah, there's a lot of things you can do. I mean, it's, it's really interesting here in that we have the exact opposite problem of, of needing more habitat. We've got, we, we need to be controlling population in, in my area um, because we have, we've done such a good job. Um, it's sort of the perfect storm of, of cover, water, habitat, and then crops, right? Corn, beans, alfalfa, and, you know, it's like Shangri-La for these animals. And we're, you know, we're running about 75 deer per square mile of habitat. 98, I'm sorry, 85% of my county is considered deer habitat. 95% of that is owned by, is privately owned. So it's a real interesting thing. We have a, a program here in Wisconsin called the Deer Management Assistant Program that helps people, landowners. Um, it's the first thing I, my land management clients, I'm like, yeah, I'm happy to have you pay me do this stuff, but there's opportunity for you to learn working with state agencies, you know, government agencies about it. You know, basic things that, that you can do is to, um, you know, you're, I mean, creating, uh, bedding areas. Um, uh, and, and in my case, I've created a giant bedding area of about 35 acres, uh, you know, it's an incredible habitat in a, what we call the Oak, um, regeneration area, shelterwood regeneration area where I'm trying to regenerate Oak. And that was my first, uh, goal is to regenerate Oak. And, but, if you know anything about deer and oak trees, they, they love to eat white oak acorns and they love to browse on red oak uh, saplings. So here I've created, and, and, and so I'm trying to regenerate this oak, but at the same time, there's all this brush and, and I mean, briars and prickly ash and, you know, all kinds of, of, of stuff that you and I aren't, are going to be reluctant to walk through, but the deer is just going to move through it. Um, and it's, you know, it's a safety area for them. Um, and then they have a certain amount of food in there as well. Um, I'm, I have become less and less interested in, um, in things like food plots, just like, I feel like food plots in farm country are like taking sand to the beach, you know, it's sort of like, what, what, what are you doing here? Um, but one of the things that I've really learned about 
about deer is um, they're, they're kind of lazy. So if I'm trying to improve hunting, I like to give them places to travel. And I like to give them places where they feel safe. We used to have on the farm a uh, an area that we didn't go into. We call it sanctuary, right? And we just didn't, that was just where we, we, we just didn't enter that area. And then deer could go in there and kind of chill out. And that was kind of a, um, what we did there was, uh, uh, I'm not a big fan of hinge cutting because of, it's not that great of a forestry practice, but it sure as hell is an effective, um, you know, um, habitat, a bedding area practice. Um, but I, I think creating a place on your property where deer are left alone is a, is a good thing that you can do. Um, now, when I say I don't do food plots, that doesn't mean I don't seed my my roads and trails down and I use a, you know, I use a clover and fescue mix and there might be a little alfalfa in there and that kind of thing. Um, but um, <laughs> interestingly, also white-tailed deer get used to human uh, presence. And if you um, are you, you're active on your property, enjoy your property. And they kind of get used to your presence, you know? I mean, they're used to farm equipment. They're used to my ATV. They're used to, I mean, I can walk into the woods and see deer run away. I can drive by them. The same deer will lay there and let me go by them because they, they haven't been threatened by that. Um, one of the things I'm really interested in lately that's really good wildlife habitat, though, is this thing called feathering, edge feathering. So, and uh, some of my friends at Pheasants Forever and folks who used to be with Pheasants Forever really have been talking with me a lot about this. So, um on the edge of, say, a tree line, you know, between properties or between fields. So you've got a fence line there. And rather than, um, and I'm sure you guys see this up there too, right? You get this real hard straight edge from the edge of the woods or the edge of a tree line and it just drops straight down. So the idea is rather than it being sort of an L, it's more of a, or a, you know, a, a 90, it's more of a triangle. So um, in feathering, you're, you're, you're creating a wider fence row. When I was a kid, we used to have wider fence rows because you just didn't, you know, you didn't have, you didn't have any need to just clear everything out around. But one of my uh, wildlife uh, ecologist friends was hunting with me recently and she was pointing out that, you know, that one fence row up there, it's got a lot of big trees and a great place for raptors. Um, and it's a great predator corridor, but it's not that great of a travel corridor for other wildlife. And so, you know, she really convinced me that here's something that I need to be, you know, looking at in this edge feathering. So you're giving a, you know, connecting corridor. Um, that's one of the things I like planting trees. Um, and I say that, I mean, I, I, you know, I planted thousands and thousands of trees in my life. Um, and, uh, I think tree planting is one of those things that can, that can really, it doesn't do it quickly, but you'd be amazed at how quickly a you know, a white oak, or I'm sorry, a white pine, two-year-old white pine seedling will become a six-foot tree that is perfectly acceptable habit, you know, uh, uh, safety area, bedding area, thermal area, a connector, that kind of thing for um, on properties. Uh, I just did this, uh, some back work on the back 40 with Mark Kenyon, and uh, that's one of the things that we did was planted trees, and we planted these little pockets of trees around the property. And yeah, they're going to do much for them this year or next year, but Three to five years from now, you bet. And I'll tell you what, fellas, as you get older, three to five years goes by real quick. <laughs> so plant that's trees. A, yeah, that's a good thing you said about planting trees. I uh, I planted trees actually when I was 
18 or 19. I think it was nine, might have been 20. I was up in BC and I planted trees for a summer uh, for reforestation up there. And then when <clears throat> just so happened, my dad got um, he bought some land. And so right when I got back from tree planting, he wanted to plant 320 trees and he wanted to do it like do these windrows. And I was just like, well, what's the point of these? Like, I understood the point of windrows is like obviously for erosion, etc. Yeah, yeah. Like, well, no, he's like, it, it works great for deer too. And I never really like understood what he really he was talking about until the last like four or five years. And I started like kind of really getting into checking these windrows out that are on his property that were pre-existing. I must add, like they were there for the last whatever thirty years. But when you go down those windrows in like the middle of rut, the whole windrow was just marked up you know what i mean scrapes rubs everything else there's beds in there and you would never think it because it's like like a one like two feet wide row of trees through the middle of the field but the deer actually do in our area anyways they do actually attract to that so in my mind like any tree is a good tree for deer habitat well and and browse is important you know they browse on white pine but they'll also uh you know it, it, it depends on how many you know deer you have around um, any kind of the, the lower shrubs that all that stuff makes a, a difference because they'll browse on that. Um, another thing that we've done on our property and it was for all wildlife and that's how I kind of look at it. I'm not going to do much that's specifically for deer. It's more of a wildlife habitat versus deer habitat. Um, in our CRP, our conservation, so our fields are, we don't harvest anything off of them anymore. Um, yeah, it's in a program for 10 years and, three years from now it'll come out of the program but um and and in the contour strips we i have strips of of tall grass prairie in there so there'll be big blue stem little blue stem um indian grass prairie drop seed and there's a bunch of forbs and that kind of stuff in there and that is i mean that stuff you know a couple of years it's there right um and it's incredible i'll tell you a quick story we uh have this late season doe hunt antlerless only hunt and uh, a couple of years ago i was up and I'm walking along. I thought, well, I'll go up here and I'll, you know, kill a deer up here in the CRP field. And, you know, it'd be easier to come and get her and stuff. And so I'm up there and I'm just like walking slowly along the edge of this long prairie strip. And, you know, it's it's December, so it's already been knocked down quite a bit. But um, so I thought I could see pretty much everything that was going on in there. And I got, I mean, you know, it's probably 600 yards around there. I got about 400 yards over and I hadn't seen a deer yet. But then all of a sudden out of the edge of the woods, I see a coyote and a coyote's considering me and i'm considering him and and uh then i saw some deer moving because that's he he had i don't know if he had, was chasing them so much as they he was disturbing them and i see these deer moving and uh coming up through these strips and so i i anticipated where they were going to go and got ready this doe stepped out and i shot her and but when i shot she goes down but all where i'd already walked and this prairie strip is probably 40 yards wide and 600 yards long, and I'm 400 yards along of it. I had walked by probably 15 deer. <laughs> I shoot, and then deer are just popping up like popcorn, you know, run through. And when, Yanni, when Giannis was here and hunted with me three, four years ago, we had a bunch of Latvian mugs from up where he hunts or where he grew up hunting. Um, came down, and, and I told him, well, Yanni, we'll put the old guys out on stand, and you and I will go out and hunt out in the CRP. I said, out there, you hunt those deer like pheasants. He's like, let's go out there. And he's like, you know, and he no more got in the field and he jumped a buck. You know, I mean, it was just that. So that tall grass stuff 
is really, you know, is, it's, that's, that's good cover. It's good habitat. So, you know, I, I know I've given you a hundred different things already that you can do, but um, it's not that simple. And then each property is a little bit different too. Some of it's just reading the property too. Like what could we do? What do you have and what can you do to make what you have better? Yeah. Those are all good points. I think there, there seems to be right now too, like uh, I don't know if it's just become a, a big realization over the last like five or 10 years or people have just gotten away from destroying prairie and, and, and turn it into uh, agriculture or plant trees on it. But the, um, another conversation that we had with uh, a friend of ours, who's a biologist out East in the Southern Ontario there. And he's saying that, you know, that tall grass prairie is some of the most biodiverse ecosystem mm-hmm. that you can find out there. I mean, especially right. when you're comparing it to old growth forest. Right. Um, it's supporting a lot more species. It's doing great, uh, great water infiltration and all of that, you know, sequestering carbon, which of course trees do as well. Um, and, and, you know, having a diverse property, I think is, is, you know, is super cool and, and, uh, and, and makes, you know, working towards diversity makes a lot of sense. And then towards, you know, what, what, what happened. I mean, I, I'm a big fan of natives. I don't like to introduce a lot of weird new stuff, even if it's annuals. Um, I do like planting sunflowers every year, but that's a couple acres. And it's just mostly because sunflowers make me smile. So. <laughs> I'm I'm curious, uh, Doug. Do the do the cattle play any part of the uh, of the the ecosystem? Do they play any role in that, or are they primarily just for uh, um, farm purposes? To look good out there on the on the pasture. Um, well, <clears throat> I can say this: if you don't overpasture, this is, and I'm not saying this from the standpoint of uh, you know, here's I'm some sort of water uh stream bank specialist or anything like that this is like practical knowledge right if you don't over pasture and you let those stream banks um uh, you know so they don't degrade by over pasturing the cows break them down and cattle will just kind of go through in the same spots you know fairly regularly so if you don't over pasture it but one of the things that they do is they sort of keep down like I, i have hereford and hereford angus cross cattle um they keep uh, the invasive species like multiflora rose and and prickly ash and and uh, autumn olive and honeysuckle and all the stuff that's just going to choke that whole thing off. They keep a lot of that down just by the nature of what they of how they conduct themselves in pasturing and stuff, right? And if you work with them a little bit, so yeah, no, they're part of it. And I really would like to get to a point where I'm better at it. Um, that's the other part of, that, you know, of all of this. I just I'm always trying to get better at it. Um, where in our grazing plan, I kind of still graze like we did. The pastures are pretty much the same as when it was a dairy farm. It's just that I've gotten broken up a little bit. I mean, they're the same pastures. Um, and so when I was a kid, you know, the cattle just kind of went, you put them out on pasture and they went and they went all the way to the back end and then they come back at the end of the day. Um, but there were a lot more of them. I guess that's was what I was getting at. And then dairy cattle are kind of, they're kind of picky, you know, whereas the Hereford Angus Cross are like, yeah, we'll eat that. <laughs> um, and I, I can tell you if you don't pasture, boom, you have an explosion of things in our area. It's called multiflora rose, 
um, which is a, it's a nasty, I mean, it's actually not a bad habitat plant in some ways, but you have to manage it. You have to control it. And it was an introduced plant, as was autumn olive, um, as was honeysuckle, you know, and all this stuff. So they are part of keeping that, uh, th- those invasive species, if they're left alone, um, at bay. And when we, there was some few years when my dad didn't have a whole lot of beef cattle out there. And I, I had to spend some time sort of reclaiming some of that pasture because that shit grows and, you know, multiflora rose gets to be six, eight feet tall. And it's these huge, nasty, thorny shrubs that, you know, it's great deer habitat, but. What do you, what do you do to, to reclaim that? Are you using like uh, some chemical killing techniques? Are you out there with a chainsaw and a hatchet whacking away or what's uh what's the best practice that, that you usually try and try and do? Well, um, yeah. So here's the thing. If you just mow it, then you got to spray it. You can spray it. Um, herbicides have their place. One of the things that I, uh, I spent a lot of time in the seat of a skid steer and have for a long time. Um, so I have a track machine with a thing on it called a, a rock bucket and, um, like multiple, a lot of that stuff, you can just tear it right out of the ground. And so you're pulling roots and all out, right? And so now obviously you got a bunch of exposed dirt. Well, then the first thing I do, you know, as soon as I, I'll just like do an area and I'll pile that stuff up, you know, burn it in the wintertime and then um, go in there and, and clean it up as best you can. But then I'll seed it, you know, and with that, that bucket, it's pretty smooth. I mean, it's not like you're, it's a field or anything, but it's pasture. And then I'll go in there and seed that down. And then you can start using a on the because any any roots are of the of these woody woody invasives that are going to come back so then you have to do spraying but i try to um um best management practices integrated pest management right so that you're you're always evaluating and then and trying to do the the least um the most effective practice in the in the most effective way and sometimes that's herbicide mm-hmm so it, it you know it kind of depends. I spent also spent a lot of time on the seed of the tractor because um, there's a lot of the herbaceous plants that if you mow them at the right time they don't come back. Huh. Um, and uh, in hell, who who doesn't like just driving around on a tractor? You know, <laughs> um, I do. I just love it. But um, and uh, but yeah, I mean you know cutting it, spraying that kind of stuff, some by hand. I also have a thing called you're gonna love the name of this thing, a tree terminator. And um, it's a goes on the front of the machine of the skid steer, and it's essentially a shear, and it, you know, the hydraulic pressure cuts. I mean, I cut, you know, like box elders and ironwood and you know undesirable trees up to 11 inches round, and and um, thinning pines with that. But it's also really good to go into some of these, uh, oh, you know, some of these bigger shrubs, and it cuts the whole thing off, and then you can just spray that spot rather than trying to like do a foliar application. Now we're getting into nuts and bolts of this shit, aren't we? Um, a foliar application on on all the leaves and stuff. Whereas if once you cut that thing off and you've got that that woody base exposed, if you're spraying your herbicide, and it depends on which herbicide you're using and all that, right onto that, um, you're having really effective management. So you know, it just kind of depends on again what it sort of looks like. Mm-hmm. So you know. And it's not, I mean, we're not talking about like super expensive equipment and stuff either. You know, I mean, the most expensive piece of equipment I own right now is a Can-Am UTV that I just picked up because I needed a new one. And my old, you know, I mean, I wear these things out in my land management work, but even the old four-wheel drive, I got a four-wheel drive Ford tractor that, um, 
you know, I don't know, it's a 75 or 78 horse tractor. And that thing is, you know, Matt, that's not an expensive piece of equipment. It's $15,000, you know, it's a used tractor. And I've got a brush hog on it. And I mean, it's not, I mean, if you've got a piece of property, you're going to have to have some of that kind of equipment or you're going to have to hire somebody like me to come with it. And yeah. that's some, I mean, some of it is I'm doing these elaborate plans and talking about all of this, you know, sort of esoteric philosophical stuff. And then other times I'm out there with a chainsaw, you know, I mean, it's just, yeah. you know, it's soup to nuts with me, you know? Oh, that's pretty cool, man. Um, you, you've obviously have a lifetime of this, uh, conservation work and ecosystem work under your belt. Uh, besides your home farm, what, what's like, uh, one of the, your favorite projects that you've been a part of or that you've worked on in the past? Hmm. Well, um, I have a number of, uh, land management, um, clients and, um, yeah, sort of fewer of them, uh, all the time because I'm not really willing to travel as much as I, I, you, I, I just, well, I'm going to be 62, right? Um, so I'm not traveling as much, but, um, there was one that's not far from here. It's about 50 minute drive. And, and this guy, um, really interesting dude. And, and we took a property that, um, had been sort of a bunch of land together. I mean, several hundred acres. Um, man, I don't know. It was sort of not jointly owned, but cooperatively. You know, they worked cooperatively. But oddly, the cooperativeness of this previous to this guy owning it and this land getting broke out was that they were like in a motocross um, motorcycle racing. And so these properties had these freaking trails going through them with these big piles of soil and, and, you know, jumps and all oh, eroded just, I mean, it really eroded badly. And then of course you get erosion like that. And what's the first thing that grows in those kinds of things is invasive species. Right. So this, this guy hires me and, um, he kind of, he, really interesting guy, um, kind of wants to hunt and that's sort of what he just wants to show up and hunt, you know? <laughs> so, okay, well, we'll take care of everything. And, um, I mean, he just not, not that he wasn't interested in all of that. He just didn't have time, you know? Um, so, and he kind of gave me a, uh, I didn't give me an open check. Well, you kind of give me an open checkbook, but, um, I would propose a lot of different things and he just kind of went along with it. Well, one of the things is I was like, well, Hey man, you know, I have to tell you, there was some good planting that was done, some tree, planting that was done in here then but there was some shrub planting that didn't make any sense and i know why they did it that way and then you got these trails around that are all eroded and stuff um i'd really like to start on improving or, or reclaiming that where it got all tore up i mean there were trails through the i mean just bad erosion and we really made a big difference on that property like restoring it restoring it to not to the time of you know 100 years ago but one of the things that we discovered he had no idea we found foundations and there was like buildings back in this woods old stone foundations and a silo and stuff like that. Well, it became a feature of the property um and there was a lot of apple trees naturally grown apple trees you know that, that it, i guess there had been an orchard that was a part of those buildings but and that was how we kind of discovered it right like i'm back there and i'm looking around this time and it was just thicker than hell the first time i saw it you know it was like you go in there in june and it's just like nuts right i mean it, i love to look at properties at this time of the year because you can kind of see their structure you can kind of see their bones you know and um uh, you know so we had 
I don't know, six, eight inches of snow on the ground here right now. And, and, you know, leaves are all off and you can really see what you're working with topography wise and stuff. But on that property, we didn't get in there until the summer. And that was what we started working on. And of course he wanted deer habitat and I wanted to, you know, improve my hunting. So, so we started opening it up. So we were actually improving the property by taking stuff out. And a lot of it was invasive species and a lot of it was knocking these hills down and regrading and then seeding those, those, trails down and they were still ended up being you know atv trails and stuff and you know or, or like a farm road is what you know i would call them um super cool property we found an old um in the 60s around here they did a lot of these uh um, flood mitigation dams and i'm literally in a machine like knocking box elders and brush and multiflora rows and all of a sudden i hit a fence line i'm like, what the hell is this and now I'm down in some, you know, kind of a swampy bottom and, you know, curious George gets out of the machine and just walks right down into this muck and I'm looking around and I see the tube for the, the, for the flood control dam that was there. Eventually we reclaimed that whole thing. It had been put in the sixties and then forgotten about. So here's this dam. We put a road across the dam. We, you know, we, we found the fences. We got rid of the fences that around it, but we reestablished all that and then seeded it down to appropriate aquatic species. Um, and, uh, re, you know, we cut down a lot of apple trees and we pruned a lot of apple trees. So what we did was made the apple trees that he had there better. And, um, you know, it's just like taken, taken away. We kept adding to the property by taking away, if that makes any sense. So that was a really interesting you know, um, a real interesting challenge. We did some water, all kinds of water work on that property. And, um, hell, we even built him a pistol shooting range and an 800 yard rifle range. And a guy was into shooting guns. I can tell you that he's actually a competitive, uh, three gun shooter, but we built a, a, yeah. I mean, just like, can you do this? Sure. We can do that. I mean, you know, how hard, how hard can it be? Right. Yeah. Sounds like a bit of a, it was really cool bit of a dream plot and it, it must be super uh rewarding to be able to uh, to like start on a property like that and just see it right through to the end pretty much and see all this stuff come to come to fruition that that you've been imagining that you've been putting into play through your mind and your your planning and execution well yeah yeah and that cat had you know he had or has um you know, money's, not, I don't want to say money's not an object because we, you know, we always talked about budget and that kind of stuff. But I mean, at the end of the day, if you wanted to do it, he could do it financially. Uh, um, worked on that property for 10 years and now he sold it because it's so far from where he lives. He wanted something closer and I've worked with him. He, he lives three hours away, three and a half hours away. So he sold the property that's half an hour from me. And now he's got one that's half an hour from him, but it's three hours from me. Mm-hmm. So I've helped with, uh, we've done some, I've done some work over there with some of the guys that work with me, but I've done more planning with him. Um, and, uh, so, but yeah, no, it was, it was really interesting, you know, seeing a property like that, that had been, uh, manipulated, heavily manipulated and then sort of to unmanipulate it, but then, then sort of rediscover what had been there, you know, a hundred years ago you know, 50 years ago, 60 years ago, but then this old foundation, he's like, I had no idea that was back there. And, you know, so he, he just really dug it. So that's cool. That's really cool. Um, I'm going to take a bit of a weird segue here as we, uh, kind of approach the, the end of our podcast here. And, um, if, 
you know anyone that follows you know that you're you're very involved in the the cwd stuff there down in wisconsin and and uh a i kind of want to know how things are going and progressing for you guys down there and uh i'm, I'm kind of super interested in this this deer dumpster stuff that you you have going on and and you know what what kind of results you've been seeing from that and and what the whole game plan is with that well this afternoon i called the um the um waste disposal company to have them come and get the um the dumpsters that i have out um because it's the end of our season and we they're mostly full and anyway so it's interesting that you you bring that up so chronic wasting disease number one thing about chronic wasting disease if you don't have it you don't want it and so one of the ways that we can mitigate that the spread is to slow down the spread and one of them is is let's not haul infected deer around in the back of trucks well i don't really have much control over what happens with the deer farmers and that kind of stuff right who in wisconsin at least have done a little bit of hauling of the uh deer around in back of trucks live ones but we also do it with dead deer um you know in our area there's people from all around the state who come and hunt here in fact if you um brian and richards at the usgs wildlife health center um did a map a few years ago of um hunting you know it, it's a dots red dots on a map of the u.s and and canada of where people who hunt in wisconsin live and holy crap they're i mean it's just whoa, everywhere right i mean everywhere so if you think about people taking deer home with them well you don't want to take the infectious material with you i remember when i was we were talking with brian on steve's uh, on Renella's podcast on the meteor podcast um, uh, we were, you know, people, well, how did it get here? You know? And he's like, well, we don't really know. And I was like, well, you know, my dad used to go out West and they bring a whole damn elk back or a whole mule deer back and stuff. And he goes, well, there's plenty of people that love to blame it on your dad, you know, <laughs> but, um, and, but you could see how that could innocently enough, right. You could see how that happened. Well, we know that that is a way that, that chronic wasting disease, the infected carcass, it's like, um, get, uh, and left on the landscape or moving along on the landscape, that is one way that it can be done. And sure, it starts very small, but there's exponential growth in the disease as well. So um, if you don't have it, you don't want it. So what are the ways that we can stop it from being spread is one, hauling it around. Um, another way is to slow the spread by um, population control. So that's a whole bunch of argument, you know, here in Wisconsin. And that didn't go very well 22 years ago or 20 years ago. And we're still doing a shitty job of actually controlling the disease by killing deer. Um, so the dumpster program that um, we initiated three years ago, you know, it struck me, we were, uh, Brian Richards and I were going out to uh, Los Angeles to be on Joe Rogan's podcast and talk about chronic wasting disease. I remember when Joe asked me, hey, Doug, when are we going to do a podcast? I was at the UFC in Chicago. He said, when are we going to do a podcast on CWD? I'm like, dude, when do you want to do it? And, I go, and, and so we we're trying to schedule it. And I was like, uh, 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 I'm not going to be like uh, some guitar player from Michigan who's going to come in and spout all kinds of conspiracy theories and shit. I'm going to bring, I want to bring an expert along. I can talk and I do talks on CWD, but I talk about my experience and perspective, right? But I'm not a scientist and I don't play when I don't pretend to be one. But I am a kid with, I'm a guy who grew up as a kid on a farm 
And I know about animal husbandry. And I know if you've got a sick animal, you want to separate it from your other animals so they're not spreading it around. I don't care what disease it is. If it's an infectious disease like pink eye or pneumonia or, you know, well, those are the two big ones, but those, you know, so you separate animals. So, and so you're not, they're not spreading it that way. So anyway, we're flying out to LA and, you know, Brian is just like this brilliant science guy and, and, uh, we've got to be very close. Um, we weren't, we, on that trip, we got to be really close, but, um, on the way out, I'm asking him a lot of questions about this. Well, you know, what can we do to slow this thing down? It seems to me like, don't you pick up the garbage? And he goes, well, yeah, that's low hanging fruit. And I said, well, why aren't we doing that? He goes, well, you have to talk to the folks at Department of Natural Resources about that. Um, they went, they had such a, ra- it wasn't a radical plan that the, the, my, our Department of Natural Resources had a good plan. They, the implementation of it was very difficult, and um, you know the, it wasn't well received by the public. But their their plan was right. What they were going to try to do, um, and that plan could still work, and it could work in in, in other areas. And that is essentially, um, you have to reduce the population because I mean we're seeing this with COVID, right? Higher population areas, COVID runs right through it because people are like next to each other. And that's why all these big urban areas, you know, that's why it's so, you know, uh, prevalent there. And it's the same sort of thing in this, you know, in this situation. If you've got a lot of deer around, you got one infected animal and there's a lot of them around and they gather in an area or they just by their nature are like that, then they're going it, to, it's going to be easier for it to spread. So if you have a fewer animals, two things are going to happen. Even if you still have 20% prevalence, well, I'd rather have 20% of 50 than 20% of 100 because it's fewer animals. The dumpster program takes that carcass schedule and that or is carcass um, uh, off the landscape. Dumpster program does that. And um, part of that is, well, you know, I just had this conversation with a guy. He goes, well, you know, is it really making that much difference? And I'm like, well, I mean, Richland County, I'll give you an example. Um, we kill about 6,000 deer in this county every year. And by my calculations, based on our dumpster program, about 2,000 carcasses have ended up in our dumpsters. Okay. And at a infection rate of about 20%, that's, you know, I don't know. What is that? 400 carcasses. Mm-hmm. Um, hey, there was quick math, right? The nuns would be proud of me. Um, so that's 400 carcasses that aren't, cause I don't know what, what you guys, how it happens up there by you, but once you bone out an animal or you butcher an animal, you get stuff left mm-hmm. and, Country roads around here, man, it'd be a pile of freaking deer bones, you know, on, on a corner somewhere. And the guys are just dropping shit off there because what else am I going to do with this, right? Guys in urban areas, if they're taking their deer to butcher, they're probably putting it in a garbage bag and sneaking it in with their garbage and it's getting taken to the landfill. I was just talking to a guy today about this. And um, uh, so, you know, another guy, as I said, said to me, well, is it really making that big of a difference? Because, I mean, there's still infection out there on the landscape. Right. That's sort of like saying, you know what? There's garbage alongside the road. So why do we pick any of it up? You know, anything that you can do is reducing risk. It's going to slow the spread. So if you don't have it, you don't want it. If you do have it, you want as little of it as possible. So those are two things to write that shit down about CWD, right? If you don't have it, you don't want it. If you do have it, you want as little as possible. And that's not only on the landscape, but that's also prevalence within the herd. Well, how do you achieve that? So 
Um, that's through population control and, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And, and, and then, you know, big part of it is, is balancing. We've got too many deer on our ecosystem, not even having anything to do with disease. We've got, it's got to do with browse and all of that, you know, it's destroying the deer can destroy the ecosystem um, or have a detrimental effect on it at the very least. But the dumpster program and then these kiosks. So we're, we also like at my place, and you may have seen this, like if you follow me on Instagram or something, you'll see a, a, be a picture of a, an orange building, little building, um, kiosk and, um, and, uh, and, a and a dumpster. And the kiosk is where people can, they cut it, the head off of their deer. And if it's a doe, I mean, nobody cares about having a doe head, right? And you fill out some paperwork, you put it in a bag, it gets dropped in there and, Two or three times a week, I'm taking them to a place, trying to make it easy for people to get testing done. Making, putting these carcass dumpsters in places where it's easy to get, um, you know, if you make it convenient for people to throw their carcass in there, they're going to do it. Mm -hmm. And so that's one of the other things that happens, right? Um, so that's one of the things that we've really learned is that, you know, it's not <laughs> it's human nature. If you make it easy, people are more apt to do it. Uh, it's easier to do the right thing if it's easier, you know? Um, but the other part of it is, at that location and other locations, initially I had six of them. Now other people have taken over the other ones. I only have two now. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with people about chronic wasting disease and what it is and how it can affect the herd both in the short term and long term. Um, to me, it's really interesting to have over the last three years, people that three years ago would say stuff like, I remember this guy I went to high school with, man. He says, uh, he's throwing a carcass in there. I was like, you know, you get that thing tested? And he goes, why? I just like the fact that, you know, we're, we got a place where we can throw these carcasses. I'm like, oh, well, it's, you know, it's helping to stop, slow the spread of CWD. He goes, CWD, he sounded like Homer Simpson. CWD, is that stuff still around? And I'm like, <laughs> yeah. Three years later, he's like talking to people about CWD. And he's concerned about it because he's got kids and he's got grandkids and he's, you know, thinking about that kind of stuff, that future stuff. There's got to be a place where folks can get together. And, you know, I'm kind of a, for better or worse, um, a trusted resource. I mean, I, you know, it's, I, I downplay it. I try to downplay it some, but people kind of look at my land management work and my forestry work and, hey, can I see your woods? Can you talk to me about forest management? You know, it's like they don't want to make mistakes and stuff. And it's like, well, a lot of it is just having the attitude, right? Let's let's do good and, and, and then let's do as good as, as as well as we can, but then we'll do better. So, and, and so that's how I kind of approach land management with people or forest management with people. It's the same way you approach I approach all kinds of conservation is like, okay, what do you have and how can we make it better? Well, we weren't doing much of a job of chronic wasting disease because there was sort of this abandonment of the idea. So, yeah, we're getting, you know, we're picking up some of the garbage. There's still garbage out there, but there's less of it. So are we, is it making a difference in slowing the spread? Sure it is. Um, how quantifiable is that? Well, like I said, you know, I can, I can do the math. I can extrapolate mm -hmm. numbers. How many carcasses are ending up in a landfill rather than getting thrown back out on the landscape? The other part of it is, you then there's this education component to, component to it today uh, also. But today, this friend of mine who does a lot of pheasant hunting on, we have, you know, a fair amount of public lands in the southwest uh, part of the state. Um, and he travels all over because he's way into pheasant hunting. And um, and it's a lot of bottoms and grasslands. It's not that great for anything else, right? And, and, and our DNR over the years 
has done a nice job of protecting areas and buying. So he's been going to a lot of public lands. And he goes, you know what? Five years ago, you pull into a public land parking lot and there'd be a bunch of freaking deer bones laying there. He said, I have been around and he started telling me all these different places he's been and I haven't seen a I haven't seen a deer carcass on any public land this year. I'm like, well, hell, that's a success right there, right? Yeah. Because what, what a sucky thing to be like somebody who's just a birder or whatever, you know, who's just going out. Somebody else who's got just as much right to that public land and that conservation, you know, those areas as 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 a hunter or whatever does. And, and they, you know, they pull in, they get out with their dog, and their dog goes over and rolls in a bunch of deer guts or in a, you know, I mean, come on, you know, pick up your shit. I mean, yeah. and that's, and so for him to tell me that today, I was just like, wow, that's, that's really gratifying, really gratifying. So there's a lot of different things that happen, you know, so there've been, it's sort of one of the things when I talk to my friends in politics, um, and they start talking to me about, well, what's the benefits of conservation and this money that we're putting into this, you know, and you have to have these conversations with the, with the politicians about it. And it's like, what they want to hear is multiple benefits from each dollar spent. And when we can show that kind of thing, so it's better for our public lands, we're slowing the spread, we're educating, we're, you know, making it better. I mean, tourism is, you know, tourism suffers if you've got a bunch of dead, you know, carcasses oh, yeah. in these areas, you know. Um, multiple benefits, the same way with any other conservation program, right? There's, you know, well, who cares? I mean, if it's just for white-tailed deer, I'm kind of like, huh. But like our conservation reserve program, there's multiple benefits from that. Water, air, habitat, tourism, all of those sort of things. And so multiple benef- multiple results from one action taken, multiple benefits from $1 spent. That kind of stuff's really important to me. Super interesting. Uh, you talked about the, the, like the dumpster program and stuff like that. We did a podcast episode with Brian, uh, Dr. Dr. Brian Kotak up here in Canada. And like, we started talking about like just the awareness and like, just even getting onto these podcasts and talking about it and people will, you know, look it up, look up CWD. And it just kind of makes me think about those dumpsters. Like those guys are dumping them in, not knowing, but then all of a sudden being like, Hey, you know, like, let's look it up. Let's Google it. And the, the, the thing is like nowadays people aren't going into the DNR offices or wherever and looking at pamphlets. Like it just doesn't happen. So you can spend right. millions of dollars on, some of the literature it just doesn't happen. You got to actually get like feet on the ground, and with these dumpsters, it just kind of made me think about the conversation we had with Brian there about it. And uh, yeah, that's super interesting. Well, the kiosks I think are really making uh, making it. I mean, Wisconsin, especially in Southwest Wisconsin, the, the 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 testing kiosks aren't there so that we can find out where CWD is. It's freaking everywhere, right? We know it is, but what it does do. We had um, 19 deer on our property. This take took 19 deer. We had one positive, so we know 18 of them are clean. You know, um, so there's that peace of mind, right? And it's also it helps us monitor like what's going on around us. But you know, it's like they don't they don't want us picking up roadkill deer and getting them tested and stuff because he's well, we know it's around there. I mean, we pick up roadkill. It sounds crazy, but we'll I'll pick up. Doesn't sound crazy. Pick up roadkill and put it in the dumpster. I mean, my township actually gives me a little bit of money towards it. And I'm like. The guys can bring a deer down and throw it in, you know, mm-hmm. if it gets hit on the road and nobody claims it. That's a big difference from 40 years ago. 40 years ago, you, a deer got killed on the highway, you know, by our farm. There'd be a conversation about who was going to get to take that thing home. And now it's like, ah, you know, ah, maybe I'll take the back straps out of it. You know, I mean, that yeah, comes, yeah. that's what people, you know, just a whole different attitude about it now because it's just litter. Um, 
But those conversations, um, I'm talking to my friends out in uh, Wyoming, uh, the Wyoming Wildlife Federation, where they've had CWD for a long time, but it's expanding west out there. And, you know, they have big landowner interaction out there as, as well. And so um, I, I really have been talking with them about the dumpster kiosk idea. And if you've got it on private land, you know, it's like, and sponsored by the landowner. I mean, that's what we say, that the landowner's taking care of this. Now I get 50% of the money back from the DNR. I submit all this, but um, eventually I get, you know, 50, 50% cost reimbursement and I get donations and I sell t-shirts and do all this other stuff to, you know, to pay for it. But um, for the other half of it, but, you know, I mean, in the five dumpsters that I have in, I'm going to have, you know, $4,500 in it. So, and I paid all of that. Um, personally, eventually I'll get half of it back and about, you know, I don't know about a little more than half. And I haven't added it all up for this year, but I'm into this thing for five or 600 bucks plus the time. But, you know, my attitude about that is so what, you know, um, this is an important thing for us to be doing. Um, and if the landowner's involved versus it just being something that the Department of Natural Resources is doing, um, well, why does that landowner care about this? You know, and they, people, for better or worse, will listen to a guy like me sometimes more than they should. Then they they should listen to <laughs> they should listen to a biologist instead. They're going to listen to me. But you know, I'm, I do speak in, in when it comes to forestry, it comes to biology, that kind of stuff. But the number one thing I'm always telling them is speak to an expert. I'm not an expert. This is what I can tell you about it. And a lot of it's kind of common sense, right? And around here, because it's farm country, it's easier to talk to people because they kind of get the whole animal husbandry idea too. Um, so, well, that's, that's that's amazing, man. And it's just again another conversation that just speaks to your position and your representation and the stewardship that you have um, on the landscape out there. And uh, I'm sure we could we could fire up another podcast episode just talking to you about cwd alone and uh maybe we'll have to pencil that in for the future but uh we don't want to keep you too much later than we already have um couple things before we depart though why don't you uh tell the folks what you kind of have planned for the future is there anything coming up that you want to speak about well that's another podcast too. <laughs> <laughs> um so I just did, if you go on to the uh, Meat Eater website and, uh, and follow Mark Kenyon, I was just involved with a project called the Back 40, where we actually did, Mark shepherded a piece of property that they bought through a land management thing. And I, I, I did a couple of days with them. They, you know, we ended up with a couple of episodes, which were really kind of fun. And, uh, and they took some of my ideas. One of the ways that I share our property with people is in, in a sort of a cooperative way. You know, the old idea of, oh, how do you get permission to hunt on somebody's land? Well, Elder Leopold did a, had a project called the, um, the Riley Game Cooperative, and, and, and there's a model there that, um, you know, sort of formalizes that idea of, you know, hey, I'll help you bail. Hey, if I can hunt on your place, you know, it formalizes that a little bit more. And then it's more conservation-based as well. That's something that I'm working on right now. But we talked about that a little bit on Mark's, uh, on the back 40, um, this second year, I don't know what, I think it was episode two that I was on and he had a, a dude come from, I don't remember where, um, Dan was from exactly, but the city somewhere. And, you know, we taught him how to plant trees and like, 
do a few things and he helped out and in exchange for that he was going to get the opportunity to hunt with mark the cooperative idea is is it takes that a little bit further right there's sort of a, a, a the idea of cooperation between people who want to hunt on private land and 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 work that needs to be done i don't care if you're a public landowner or a private landowner landowners work on their land um you just don't go out and take from it and i th- i was I, I think sometimes that people look at public land as something I just go and take stuff from. And my friends at the backcountry hunters and anglers here in, in the U.S., I don't know if they have a Canadian, um, you know, that's a public land group. And, and Steve and the folks at Mediator are, are pretty involved with that, that organization. And, and those guys are doing, not only are they defending public lands, but they're doing work on public lands too. And I think that's really um, important. So I think that, um, that's one of the things that I'm I'm working on, and there may be some things coming up on that. We're kicking around some ideas. That's one of the things that I'm working on. Um, we got uh, turkey season coming up, and I've got um, some guests coming that may or may not end up being, uh, you know, something that you'll see in the media. Um, but in some of it, I've got conservation Folks that I'm interested in conservation that that do interesting conservation work, I've got them coming. I'm I'm, it's, I'm sneaky when it comes to this kind of stuff. It's like I pick I pick people's brains, and what do I have to offer them? Right? Well, you want to come hunting on my farm? And invariably, those are the kind of people that are also say, "What can I do for you? What can I do on this property?" You know, and uh, you know, and so that's that's some of the thing. Um, if you go to my uh, website, which is uh, interestingly enough, www.dougduran.com. Um, you can find out a little bit more about our farm, um, a little more about me, the idea of it's not ours, it's just our turn. Um, we do have a cabin on the property that we, um, we lease out, not, not for hunting, but we're just for people to, to hang out. It's a little log cabin. Um, and so I'm doing that kind of stuff. And I still have my, uh, I guess we didn't talk about this because it didn't really anything to do with it. That earth science degree, I actually build and manage athletic fields for, uh, for a big part of my living, it's becoming less and less all the time. But, um, so, you know, I'm kind of thinking about what projects I'm doing with my land or with my athletic field clients for next year. Um, and we're doing some of that kind of planning. Um, I don't talk about that on the website at all anymore. Cause that it's not the kind of word that, um, that work sort of just kind of comes. And, uh, one of these days, I hope that when the whole COVID thing gets, uh, figured out we had i I was going to appear at two of the mediator live shows one in minneapolis and one in chicago and those were postponed and uh, they were supposed to happen in april and i think they've been postponed again now too um and i look forward to doing that because that's i I love that part of it you know it's a blast going and doing uh um anything where you know you get to meet people and and hang out um pheasant fest um has been canceled for this year um, and I have been a speaker at Pheasant Fest for the last three years, and uh, it's been canceled for this year, but I hope that they'll have me back when that happens again. So, you know, like some of the speaking engagements and being out there and stuff, that you, know, you should go to my website and or follow me on Instagram. It's at Doug Duran again, you know, hard to forget. Follow me on Instagram, and you can kind of follow along with, with what I'm doing, and <clears throat> some of it is just whatever the hell is on my mind that day, too. You know? <laughs> <laughs> You got, uh, I'll give you one last plug here too. I think you mentioned it, uh, earlier in the podcast, but he also has some, some pretty cool merch in your, in your store that's on the website in the way of t-shirts, some magnets, stickers, yeah. and, uh, and a few other things on there. So 
that's, uh, I mean, similar mindset to us, I'm sure, raise a little bit of money to, to help the cause, but also they're good conversation pieces, right? So somebody purchases something like that and then uh, conversation could get struck up around that piece and it goes a long way. Yeah, it's remarkable. We've sold merch. It's not ours. It's just our turn merch in uh, every state in the union, I believe, and seven countries. And it just kind of, we sent it, we're sending our first stuff to Ireland tomorrow. No way. And it's just sort of like, huh? <laughs> anyway, and we do ship to Canada and stuff. It's just a little weird. You go on there, wait a minute, it doesn't say you ship to Canada. Well, you know, we're a small group. I, I've got a, uh, a remarkable person who does my uh, merchandise for me, Lindsay. Hi, Lindsay. Um, and she figures it out. You know, a lot of bigger places won't do that. I will say right now we're way down. We've kind of, we're doing a, we're going to read uh we're in a re what do you call that when you redo your website i don't know there's a thing that they rebuild it we're re Re rebrand it maybe well yeah well it's just we're re we're we're gonna have a new website um and uh we're we've been kind of we sold a lot of merch over uh prior to the holidays and um uh, meat eater actually had a doug Duran. it's not ours it's just our turn shirt that that sold out but um um, so just keep checking back there and yeah, man, I mean, there's magnet stickers and, but I mean, really what I really want would like people to, to think about is that conservation idea that, that it isn't ours. It's just our turn. So. Awesome. Sheldon, any final thoughts before we wrap stuff up here, buddy? Yeah, I do have a couple things here and I don't want to jump down a huge rabbit hole here, Doug, but, uh, man, be careful, you, man. <laughs> I have to ask you one thing first is that. I know that you've had lots of guests uh, hunting with you at, at the farm and everything, everything like that. Uh, do you guys have a tradition after you harvest the deer? Oh, you mean like biting a chunk out of its heart or something like that? Well, yeah, <laughs> or whatever, a shot of whiskey or biting an onion. There's, I've heard a lot of crazy ones, but uh, and a lot of good ones too. But I was just wondering if you had something going. Well, on. it's you know, um, we we you know nothing that's that's always repeated. Um, I, I, we celebrating the, the deer is, is really important. And, you know, it's just been so weird this year with COVID and everything. We just never, we never had the big group, you know, it was small. And so we weren't really able to do the, you know, where we're all standing around and, you know, do having a, a toast to the, to the hunt and to the deer and stuff. And, and, uh, but that's, that's, I mean, nothing, nothing that's, you know, real ritualistic. I have my own thing that I do every time I kill a deer, but that's sort of my thing, you know, and it'll have to remain a mystery to you. Yeah. Um, but it's nothing weird. I will say it's just mostly a thank given thanks kind of. Right. Um, but yeah, like other than that, I, I just wanted to yeah say thanks Doug for coming on it. And man, like shit, I have so many more questions for you um, that, you know, it'd be awesome to get you back on. But the one thing I do have to say is like, uh, I'd just like to say thank you to, to all everything that you've been doing. Uh, in the outdoors, not only in the U.S., but I, it it does trickle up here into Canada. A lot of people know a lot of the things you're doing, and in, in your, you know, um, I I don't know how to say it in better words other than like you're you're a great avenue for knowledge and and everything else that we need and we need to keep talking about to make, you know, to keep how does your saying go? It's not ours; it's just our turn. But there you, now you need, got it, man. It. See, we need we it. need it. So thank you very much for doing everything you do and. Yeah, hopefully we'll be talking here soon on another podcast uh, down the road. I'm sure we can figure that out. 
I, I see that we've been talking here for, I mean, you guys were hoping for 45 minutes, right? <laughs> yeah, we're just rolling up on two hours here now. <laughs> yeah. Well, phenomenal. Uh, Sheldon, I think you wrapped it up there very well. And uh, big thanks again, Doug, for coming on. And we'll talk to you again soon. All right. Well, that was episode number 73 with Doug Duran. What a great guest. You know, having guests like this are super important for our growth and for us to get that done. It's uh, an easy like, rate, and comment, like I said in the intro. We've got a couple of things uh, on the go, too. we got Instagram, Facebook, and we got a store if you go to www.panoramicoutdoors. And I think Chase has got some uh, information on what's in our store for sale and what else there is to find on our website. Yeah, so we got uh, some hoodies up on the store, some T-shirts, uh, toques, hats, buffs, quite a few different things. Gift cards, if you're looking at just getting a gift for somebody and you don't really know what they're going to like, check out our gift cards. Uh, we also have some cool stuff that's going to be rolling out this spring that I'm super pumped about. We're going to keep that a secret for now, though. And uh, we also have the Panoramic Journal our uh our blog that we're rolling out and uh check that out if you want uh some reading enter- entertainment some hunting stories and some puppy stories there and uh yeah yeah we're also looking to expand into the the video content side of things which i'm really excited about and i think it'll just kind of really round out our our involvement as panoramic in the outdoors and get get out there right and if you folks listening think that there's, there's a story or an issue out there that maybe the outdoor community is missing or need, needs to have some attention on it, or if there's a, you know, just a good topic that doesn't get talked out enough about, shoot us a DM. We're, we're all ears about that stuff, and uh, we, we want to be able to add value to conversations around conservation in the outdoors. So uh, we're always open to that as well. Yeah, it's well said, Tristan. And uh, again, thanks everyone for listening. That was episode number 73.